I've encountered a virgins in the force. A virgins, you say? Located around a person? A boy. You refer to the prophecy of the one who will bring balance to the force. You believe it's this boy? Now playing's Star Wars Retrospective Series. At last we will reveal ourselves to the Jedi. At last we will have revenge. Hosted by Arnie. You have been well trained, my young apprentice. They will be no match for you. Stuart. The boy is dangerous. They all sense it. Why can't you? And Jacob. That little human being is out of his mind! granted me permission to train you. You will be a Jedi. I promise. Come to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as they review another Star Wars film leading up to the new film, Episode 7, The Force Awakens. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. I sense much fear in you. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers. I have a bad feeling about this. Listener discretion is advised. Wipe them out. All of them. Today, we should discuss in episode one, Duck and the Menace, starring Liam Neeson, Ewan McGregor, <laughs> Natalie Portman, Jake Lloyd, Ian McDermott, Anthony Daniels, directed by the Big Bongo, George Lucas. Misa Arnie, Misa co-host of Now Playing. You're not going to do that the whole show, are you? It's Stuart in LA. I don't think I could take it. And this is the host that is an angel, Jacob. The movie's called The Phantom Menace, and I think we're supposed to think it's Darth Vader. But come on, yeah, it's Jar Jar. I mean, if there's one thing that looms large over this movie, if there's one thing... Instantly you think about when you think about episode one, all the plot, everything about this movie will be dwarfed in the shadow of what? The first CGI fully animated character? No, no. This is what you think of as dwarfing the Phantom Menace. My immediate first thought when I think Phantom Menace is Darth Maul. Phantom Menace, though. Wow. I can remember this so vividly when it came out. I don't know that I've ever before or since been more hyped for a movie. And on the opposite ends of things, this is the only Star Wars movie I've never seen in theaters. What? What? Well, how do you not see this one? Like, after this wait, I mean, just the buildup alone, it didn't have you curious? No, actually, it, it was the opposite. I was indignant. Keep in mind, I was in film school, and when I heard that George Lucas wanted to change filmmaking so that it would basically be computer programming and paint boxing, 
I was outraged. I was horrified at the idea that actors would be distorted and altered to the whims of the director, that it basically became a medium of computer tweaking. This got my goat, and I defied. I, I was not going to see it. And then the hype, I was mortified. I And then the reviews came in. Everyone hated it. So I was like, well, why would I bother with it? I saw it about four or five years later, before Attack of the Clones, so it couldn't have been that long. But that was the only time I ever saw it and my attention was only kind of half on it i was able to go opening day i waited in line got my ticket saw the film got right back in line and saw it again saw it twice opening day and probably a few more times in theaters after that yeah i went midnight opening day which was a month after i'd bought my tickets i then was back at the 10 a.m showing the 12 30 showing the three o'clock showing and then i went back the next day god i saw this about eight times in four days, mm. and most of them in the first 24 hours. And I saw this in 3D. I saw this theatrically not all that long ago. I was in New York. They did a 3D conversion on this. I saw it then, too. Yeah, which is so weird. I guess Lucas thought he would release them all in 3D. I, I'm sure fans were upset that he started with The Phantom Menace. Why not start with what is now called A New Hope? Interestingly, the conversions of parts two and three were completed. They were supposed to be released in October 2013. Disney bought Lucas in May, June 2013. One of the very first things they did was pull the plug on those releases. They'd spent the money to convert it. They were not going to remind people of prequels. Well, not if they're going to make new movies. I understand that logic. But the 3D, it's okay. It's not bad. It's a conversion. What do you expect? So my question for both of you guys then, and you saw it multiple times, when did you know it was bad? You know what? I said, this is a journey for me. Back when we began this, I didn't think this was bad when I saw it. I'll, I'll wait till we get into the film to talk about what I think now, but I was defending the film. Like I'm like, yeah, Jar Jar, I don't know, he's goofy. The C-3PO kind of acted goofy in those other films. I didn't have a problem with that. The acting's bad, sure. They are bad in those other ones. Like, Stuart, you said yourself with the first Star Wars film, you're like, oh, this gets by on good grace, otherwise we'd be tearing this apart. That's kind of how I feel this one. This is like watching that Star Wars film without giving it the good graces of being this historically important film so my argument always was is like it's not as bad as those other ones were if you want to get realistic about them i recognized there was problems pretty early on not the first showing not the second showing <laughs> which one of your eight showings around showing four or five was when i first started to realize but i might have just been overdosing yeah you were out of your mind <laughs> but a lot of people i know I don't get them, but a lot of people I know say the next one's the worst. They don't mind Phantom Menace. It's Attack of the Clones that really irks them. Interesting. So we're going to discuss it, but it is an improper representation to say universally Star Wars fans think Phantom Menace is the worst. I think there's a majority who view this as a turning point. There's a lot of people who will disavow the prequels. Disney is catering to those people because Disney seems to be disavowing the prequels. They've already promised no midichlorians in episode seven, no Sith in episode seven. I do think this film gets undue criticism, like overly bearing. Yeah, there are problems with it, but I feel like it became trendy to crap all over this film and people jumped on that. People that probably saw this eight times in a row and then they, they didn't have the chutzpah to stick up for it. All, all their friends or the critics were talking bad about it. I, I, I felt like there was a lot of goodwill the first month this was out and it, it came later. 
Yeah, I, that's my sense as well, was that it took a while for it to turn. But when it did, it got poisonous very quickly. And that, that seems to happen a lot with phenomenons. I, I feel that happens whenever we have a movie that that just becomes a cultural phenomenon. It takes four or five months for the haters to start speaking out. Yeah, I only recall positive things. Even the reviews at the time... They might not have been glowing, but they were at least middling to positive. And it was something that evolved into what it is. And now I think you want to be cool by beating up episode one. If you think that makes you cool, have at it. Yeah, Lucas doesn't help himself. He doesn't do himself any favors with this film. I'll, I'll say that, but we'll get into the film. I, I don't think it's quite the punching bag that people have made it out to be. Well, my memories were mostly of the problems. I, you know, as I have been for all the ones that I've seen before, uh, before I turned this thing on, I wrote down everything I could think about Phantom Menace. <laughs> and not surprisingly, the very first thing was Jaja. <laughs> Squeeze me! Jaja, Jaja, Jaja! I was a gunkin. <laughs> Me no understand the complicated tax laws, trade laws. <laughs> Me just want to break things and fall over in every scene. Me single-handedly ruin movie. But don't forget about me. Yippee. I'm Darth Vader as Dennis the Menace. I love Jar Jar, so that's how you know I'm going to grow up to be evil. And I will be entering a pod race and win. And then there's me. Natalie Portman, I spend the whole movie wearing Bjork frocks and talking to my teeth. And then you got Ewan McGregor playing Obi-Wan Kenobi, but Liam Neeson is getting the Obi-Wan Kenobi part because he's going to be the sage who will die fighting the great evil. And the great evil, of course, is Darth Maul, who is a tattooed-faced red demon with a two-sided lightsaber who gets cut in half surprisingly easily and falls down a cloud city like Chasm. And then for reasons I can't remember, a bunch of robots that look like Mystery Science Theater 3000 creations are running across a plane. <laughs> they do look like crow don't they and fighting jar jar I, i'm like i think they're fighting jar jar and r2 might be there as well but there is no c3po and that is all i could remember how well did you feel about that when you rewatched it uh, i feel that what i remembered were the glaring problems that what you remember about this movie are the things that don't work which would be jar jar jake lloyd <laughs> natalie portman not enough darth maul and stupid robots i will say are you an angel like became this mocking way my friends and i would like greet each other sometimes like jake lloyd we'll talk about him he wishes we wouldn't Boy, is he in jail yet? I know he had, like, his DUI, so... What? Oh, no. He went Justin Bieber? Jake Lloyd has kind of gone the Todd Bridges route. This ruined his life, he thinks. Uh, you know what? But I, I can imagine that having this be your legacy would make you hate people. I could imagine wanting to be a hermit and drinking too much and breaking things a lot <laughs> if people associated me with... Yeah, something that may have ruined, you know, the expression rate my childhood, it comes up. And yes, that does sound like an overstatement. But people feel very passionately that this movie is a betrayal. And I would think that a lot of that's going to be transferred on to Jake Lloyd. He is terrible in this film, and he's a big part of it. I mean, this is supposed to be Darth Vader. I want to point out that Phantom Menace, I mean, the poster, the first one sheet I ever saw of this was that little kid with a shadow that showed you the Darth Vader to come. I thought we were going to watch The Omen. And instead, what we're going to get is much closer to an Ewok movie. As for Jake Lloyd, I went back and I saw Jake 
jingle all the way for him when this was coming. Aw, was he in that? Yes, he was actually decent-ish as Arnold Schwarzenegger's <laughs> son who wanted... Decent-ish. <laughs> oh, he was the one that wanted the Arnold toy. Or he wanted the Turbo Man. Okay. And I even watched Ben-Hur for this. I was so excited for Star Wars. I couldn't believe how excited I was. I heard there was a pod race that was modeled after the chariot race in Ben-Hur. So here I am watching biblical epics in my hype for episode one. (laughs) All right, Arnie, why don't you give him the real plot? We can get into Phantom Menace. On the peaceful planet of Naboo, the wise and noble Jar Jar Binks is out for an early morning munchin'. Is this going to all be from his perspective? (laughs) I think it should be. (laughs) But this adept alien, played by Ahmed Best, has his day disrupted when an army of Trade Federation battle droids and tanks storm the forest. Jar Jar doesn't know why these droids are attacking, though eventually he hears something about trade routes and taxation. But it all seems too convoluted and illogical for this creature of the forest and the water. Soon he encounters Jedi Master Qui-Gon Jinn, played by Liam Neeson, and his Jedi Padawan apprentice Obi-Wan Kenobi, played by Ewan McGregor. These two Guardians of Peace had come to Naboo to try and negotiate the Trade Federation to end their blockade, but they too were attacked by the nefarious Nemoidians. Anxious to aid these knights, the brave Jar Jar risks his own life, taking them to the underwater Gungan City, where Jar Jar had been banished due to accidentally boomdegasser, which crashed their boss's Hitler There, the knights trick the Gungan ruler Boss Nass into giving them a bongo to travel to the Naboo city, and while Obi-Wan seems content to leave Jar Jar to suffer, Qui-Gon repays the Gungan's kindness by convincing Boss Nass to make him the Jedi's slave instead of killing him. (laughs) He'll regret that. (laughs) In Naboo, the Jedi meet the racist Gungan-hating Queen Amidala, played by Natalie Portman. (laughs) As the Nemoidians had taken the castle, the Jedi, the Queen, her handmaidens, and Jar Jar flee the planet. But their ship is damaged, so they cannot return to the galactic capital of Coruscant. Instead, they must land on the hut-ruled desert world of Tatooine to get repairs. The desert world is murder to Jar Jar's normally moist skin, and the ground is laced with poodoo in which the normally clean alien steps. But they find the only shop on the planet that can replace their Nubian ship's hyperdrive. But on this lawless world, the Junker Wada will not accept the Jedi Galactic credits, but thanks to Jar Jar's winning ways, the group befriends Wada's boy slave Anakin and his mother. Anakin, who was immaculately conceived, gives the group guidance on how to con Wado out of that Nubian hyperdrive by gambling that Anakin will win the pod race. Qui-Gon illicitly takes some of the boy's blood and finds him to have an extraordinarily high midichlorian count meaning he is strong with the Force and can use that mystical power to win the pod race. Qui-Gon's gambling not only wins him the hyperdrive, but also the boy. Now the owner of two slaves and a working ship, Qui-Gon goes to Coruscant. There he takes the boy in front of the Jedi Council, claiming he's a prophesized chosen one who will bring balance to the Force. But Masters Yoda and Mace Windu say the child is too old and forbid him from being trained. He's like five. (laughs) I think he's like ten. Actually... Canonically, nine. Also, as the Senate cannot respond to the Queen's call for aid without proof of illegal barricades, she calls for a leadership change, and Naboo's own Senator Palpatine, played by Ian McDermott, is elected the new Chancellor. But Amidala can't wait for the politics, so she, Obi-Wan, Qui-Gon, and Qui-Gon's two slaves return to Naboo. There, she begs the Gungans for help, and thanks to the introduction given by the wise Jar Jar Binks, they agree. And finally realizing Jar Jar's value... Boss Nass gives him an immediate promotion to Bombad General to lead the Gungan army in a three-pronged assault to capture the Nemoidian leaders. 
But what they don't expect is to find a Sith Lord. Ray Park is Darth Maul in the castle. The entire plot has been orchestrated by the Sith Master Darth Sidious, and he sends his apprentice to Naboo to guard the Nemoidians. The two Jedi fight Darth Maul and Qui-Gon is slain before Obi-Wan cuts the demonic force user in half. On the battlefield, tragically Jar Jar's army has fallen and seems about to be slain, save that Anakin accidentally launched a starfighter, then accidentally crashed it into a droid control ship, and happened to blow it up, cutting power to the droid army. (laughs) (laughs) That's how it happened? That is what I saw! (laughs) Okay, I believe you. And with this success, the former queen stages a coup to regain her throne, and once she has regained her rulership, she, with Jar Jar at her side, throw a celebration. Meanwhile, Obi-Wan agrees to fulfill Qui-Gon's dying wish to train Anakin as a Jedi. Reluctantly, Yoda and the Council agree, and Anakin is now a Jedi Padawan, as credits roll. Now, I think the first point in contention with this film, though, one of the criticisms was the politics of The Phantom Menace, and you get this right away, as I've been doing. Like, I'm trying to understand this opening scroll, like, taxation under dispute, exciting kids, get excited. Trade Federation has stopped shipping to Naboo. Don't you feel the chills up your spine? And Congress has dispatched two Jedi to resolve it. And I agree, Jacob. I immediately, like, pause this film and I'm like, you know, with a good editor, you could change this thing around, this opening scroll, and completely make it better. Because there is nothing in this movie that requires mention of taxation of trade routes. I don't even know what that means. There is nothing in this movie that requires them to even mention there's a blockade going on. (laughs) Well, I do think that is a big cause for the American Revolution, you know, uh, teas and harbor and what have you. But I also just want to point out, okay, the first Star Wars came out in the aftermath of Vietnam, where we were grappling with the fact that we had just lost a war, and they were able to present the shiny new war that was exciting and had us as victors. Here, it's been relative peace in the 90s. What we've had is a very dysfunctional Congress, and a lot of what people have been consuming is Newt Gingrich versus Bill Clinton. I mean, that is the war. Do you think Newt Gunray is a stand-in for Newt Gingrich? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not saying anyone is playing them. It's not that close to reality, but I do feel like if you wanted to talk about battles, really the only one going on on the American front at this time is, yeah, congressional battles. Here's the weird thing, Stuart. I feel like you're defending this movie now because in the first Star Wars... You know what? The entire Senate got dissolved. We don't see that. We don't have to see that on Coruscant. It's a line given by one of the Imperial generals, and it moves on. Like, yeah, there's politics going on in that film. It's all in the background. Here, it's all about the politics, which seems like the wrong move, especially because Lucas is like, no, this is a kid's franchise. Yes, that's the problem. I'm actually, believe it or not, I think it's cool that I like things when they can explain complicated, maybe dry systems of bureaucracy in an exciting way. I can think of like the TV series The Wire or, you know, there was a recently a movie, A Most Violent Year, which was all about selling heating oil, but they made it feel like a mob movie. I mean, I think that you can take really dry stuff and make it exciting and make it work and cerebral for an adult audience. 
Lucas did it with THX 1138. That's all about bureaucracy. I don't know how exciting it is, but it's definitely adult. But the problem is, this is not really the audience that he's going for. It's not a sophisticated adult audience. This is going to be the most rudimentary, child-oriented movie of the whole franchise next to the Ewoks. My problems are far more fundamental than this. You guys talk about the trade routes and things. I mean, going into this movie... I realized that this wasn't the prequel that I had envisioned and that I had put together from interviews Lucas had done over 15 years. I mean, I mentioned in the plot summary, Anakin's too old to begin the training. But if you go back to what Obi-Wan said in A New Hope, when he first met Anakin, Anakin was a great pilot. I took that to mean pilot, not pod racer. Yeah, maybe he heard about his great flying, his, the accidental destruction of the droid control ship at the end of this film. And also, in Return of the Jedi, Obi-Wan says he trained Anakin. In fact, in all the movies, Obi-Wan says he trained Anakin. Who's Qui-Gon? Who's what? <laughs> Who's training who? Well, yeah, we, we heard Yoda trained Obi-Wan. Yes. And here, yeah, we got a Qui-Gon now. But what happened was Lucas grew older, Lucas adopted children, his daughter is actually one of Anakin's playmates in this movie in that one brief scene around the pod racer where other children show up, and he wanted to go younger. I don't think this was his original vision. In fact, when the DVD finally came out and had this huge documentary on it, which was originally a web series, it shows him day one being filmed to sit down and write The Phantom Menace. And he looks right at the camera and goes, now all I need is an idea. Yeah, with his yellow legal pad. Like, this guy's not even typing it out. He's going to write it all out in pencil. That's fine. He's old, but he should have an idea. (laughs) He's been working on this for how many years? (laughs) 22 years. He has no idea. And what makes matters worse is every wrong motivation you may think he has is utterly true. He may have said in interviews around the time, he's been burning to tell this story. And he may have said he took years off to raise his children, and now he feels ready to get back into filmmaking. But I saw a PBS interview he did where he must have had a drink beforehand. He came out and was so blunt that my jaw was on the floor. Out of his own mouth, he goes, well, when Marsha divorced me, she took all my money. I didn't have that much money left. Now, to him, having millions and millions is not much money. To us, that's called a retirement fund. A pipe dream. Yeah. <laughs> a retirement fund. I don't I, I don't think you've seen my IRA. Yeah, I, I hope my retirement has millions and millions. <laughs> what, a, a retirement fund, that mythological thing that none of us here have. <laughs> yeah, I would be happy to have Radio Land murderous profits from my retirement. <laughs> but he owned freaking ILM. He owned THX, like two of the big technological powerhouses. It wasn't enough for him, so he took everything he had and sunk it in here, and he said on this PBS interview, he knew that this would put him back on top. He'd put all his money into making episode one, and sure enough, it did. I mean, this guy's now richer than God himself, and even richer still after God's superior Disney bought him. 
Well, you know, always a, a great motive for making great art, right? I'm going to get rich. I mean, that <laughs> does not inspire confidence. But commerce is not necessarily a negative. Because he wanted to go back to the Star Wars well and hadn't really been thinking about it. What you're alleging is basically he was snowing all of us and saying he was working on something. But like that, you know, proverbial term paper that you've had all semester to write and now it's due tomorrow. You actually haven't done a thing and you're going to cram and throw whatever out the next morning and that's that's what he did well and what he said was he viewed this movie as playing jazz <laughs> he knew he didn't have a whole lot of story and so he was just gonna come up with wherever the story took him wherever the characters took him and have scenes that aren't plot driven or character driven but just fill out two hours Jazz riffs. I remember you using that term to describe this movie. Why not just hire a writer? Like, sure. His best films are when, you know, Empire, when he's got less involvement there. Why doesn't he spit out a bunch of ideas? Someone actually fleshes that out that knows how to write. Because whether or not I like this film, Lucas doesn't know how to write. He did go to Lawrence Kasdan at some point during the prequels and say, would you like to co-write these with me? Lawrence Kasdan, who worked on Empire and who is working again on episode seven. But Lawrence Kasdan said no. He only returned to the franchise now where he was excited about doing future stories. The thought of going back and telling what happened before Star Wars really didn't interest him at that point. So Lucas did it on his own. And he created this, but I gotta start off by giving this film a huge compliment. It took CGI to the next level. Now today, watching it, I still see some poor matting and some problems with the CGI because it was still primarily film. I believe, if memory serves, this movie has the first digitally shot sequence in a cinematic release, and then he would move on to the next films to shoot all digitally. Lucas had his own other profit motives besides just making money on the movie. He was pushing new technologies, showing what they could do. Fun fact, he built all of his sets only six feet high. Everything above that was CGI. Then they hired Liam Neeson and the set designers literally had to go back and add another foot because that mofo is tall. <laughs> but the CGI in this, the graphics in this, he always said that the original films didn't give him the vision to do what he wanted to do. You can't say that when the movie starts and there's a fleet of droid control ships and a starfighter and all this realistic looking cgi yeah the mechanical stuff i think still holds up the battle droids the different ships that stuff's still working for me i think it has a bit of a gloss to it you know we've talked about this used universe this universe has not been used yet in these films everything is shiny and glossy and i think that's partly because of the cgi it's just easier to do it's harder to dirty it up well that was also lucas's intent is that things were dirty and lived in because things were bad because of the civil war he wanted this to be clean. He wanted this to be Victorian era. Yeah, a utopia of some sort. You know, the compliment I'm going to give is that it still feels Star Wars. When I look at these ships, when I hear the noises, I feel this is connected. And maybe that's partly because I watched the digitally doctored versions of the original trilogy. But this feels of the same piece, but with an obvious digital bent to it. I mean, it's obviously the most digital of all of them. And it becomes more noticeable 
noticeable when I see characters interact. Later, it does start to bother me that everyone looks like they're on a green screen. But during ship battles, during the overall design of this, I would say they've successfully conjured up what was magical about that first trilogy in the art direction in the in the world. You say it feels of the same piece. We cannot discount the two men who we've given so much praise to, John Williams and Ben Burt, both back for this. Ben Burt, his sound effects library is here, so doors opening are using that same sound, lightsabers are using the same technique, and John Williams composing a totally different score, intentionally hampered by not using the Imperial March, but creating new themes that fit in with the old and bringing every so often a reprise of that Luke Skywalker Star Wars theme when needed, when Anakin's around and the low chance of the Emperor when Darth Sidious shows himself, that really helps tie it together. I don't feel like the score here is very memorable. I only notice the music when it does hit those old cues. I couldn't hum the Phantom Menace theme. Does Jar Jar have a theme? Well, yes, actually he does. But what about the Duel of the Fates? The one with the chant? That had a music video for crying out loud. Yeah, the Duel of the Fates... Great song, but I agree with Stuart. Nothing else here. It doesn't feel like a menace to me. If there's some phantom that's supposed to be scaring us, it's not here because, yeah, there is no Imperial March. These bad guys, these battle droids, did Ben Burt, this had to be a Lucas thing, their voices. Like, that couldn't have been Burt's decision. These goofy, high-pitched whines that they make for comedic purposes. Like, I want to feel danger. I want to feel like there's a menace, but I don't because I'm missing some classic music and then whatever Lucas has decided to do with these robots. Yeah, let's just say this title sucks. What is the Phantom Menace? I've heard Lucas explain it, that there's something out there that's dangerous and problematic, but does that really come through? A New Hope was tacked on to the first film. It's not a great add-on. The Phantom Menace feels tacked on here. Of all the movie titles, the worst is Phantom Menace, Mm. the second worst is A New Hope. The rest mm. at least all have some meaning. I don't know about Attack the, of the Clones either, but we haven't gotten to that movie. Send in the clones, yeah. <laughs> yeah, send in the clones. That was the uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I the, the titles aren't great. I, I'm fine with just calling it episode one, quite honestly. But yeah, you say Phantom Menace, and I think I'm talking about the shadow that lingers over our main hero. And that, yeah, to me, I would approach this as, oh, this is a horror story. This is the story uh, that's a tragedy. That It's about the fall of an innocent child into evil, and that this first episode should at least be about how he is making those steps towards that destiny. I don't think that's the story we get. I'll tell you what Lucas wanted. He wanted to show us a good boy that becomes evil. We follow his descent and his tragedy, the tragedy of Anakin Skywalker. Yeah. I don't think that that actually comes through. We'll talk about it at specific moments. I think a lot of it has to do with casting, both in this movie and the next. But that's what he wanted us to see, is Hitler as a child, as a boy playing in the streets, and then he becomes this evil killer. That's the right instinct. You don't start with him evil, but you show the journey to get there. And in this movie, I mean, well, it's worth pointing out, for a good half hour, 40 minutes, he's not even in it. I mean, what we get instead are the Jedi. And let me ask you, I think Lucas is deluded. Actually, I think that in many ways, but specifically (laughs) in thinking that episode one should be watched first. Because I said this when we reviewed episode four. 
Episode four has the talkie scene between Luke and Obi-Wan where he goes, what a Jedi is, what the Force is, what a lightsaber is. Here they just throw you in and you'd think that these guys are just magical people who could do anything if you didn't come in seeing episode four. If this was your first Star Wars, you'd have no idea what a Jedi Knight is other than the scroll telling you they're the Guardians of Peace and Justice. And they seem to come off like dicks in the council. Yeah, I agree. They they wouldn't carry much weight. You wouldn't know how to think of them. Typically, I think of people in hoodies as being kind of scary. So I wouldn't think of them necessarily as the good guys, other than they have banter. They're kind of funny. And because they're played by human beings, as opposed to the viceroy they're meeting, which are these, you know, anytime it's a Muppet, you, they tend to be more monstrous. Yeah, I think maybe we'll find out a little bit more about what Jedi are later in the film. I I didn't watch it as trying to be a newbie. I don't think I just, I could. I tried to, you know, pay a little bit of attention. Does this get explained as that? But it would be weird if you didn't know who Jedi were at the beginning here, because they could hold their breath super long. They could run really fast like the Flash, which was even weird when I knew what Jedi were. They should go with, with what they did in the first one. They should have led with the princess. Seeing a princess, you immediately know she's good. I don't know why that is, but unless she's green-skinned or, you know, wearing a black dress, typically we see a princess in the story, we're rooting for her. And if Amidala were here in these moments, we would know she was the good guy. We would know the other ones are bad guys. The Jedi, of course, no one's going into this cold. We all know what Jedi are. I would take it a step even further. If if this was the Lucas of old, you know where this film would have started was when the Jedi have the princess and they're escaping the Habu. Like you, he would have started right in the middle of the action. We're gonna yeah. take so much time to get there and introduce all these characters. I love that about A New Hope is that you're just thrown into the m- middle of this giant space battle with all this turmoil going on across the galaxy. Here it plods along. I don't think they started necessarily in the wrong place to tell the story that they're going to tell. What I think is the problem is it's called episode one, as if this sets the tone for all of the other movies. Uh, This should be like episode 23 or something like that. (laughs) There's a lot more to set up than we're going to get in this movie, but oh well. In the first film, Obi-Wan did say that the Jedi have been around for over a thousand generations. So no matter what you come into, you're going to come into a story in progress. In fact... That's one of the things people laud Star Wars for doing, is throwing you in the middle of the action, starting off with a bang. I think he tried to replicate that here, where you have the two mysterious Jedi going to the ship, and I remember seeing this at that midnight showing, and I see two hooded people going to a ship. I'm like, I know that somebody who looks like the Emperor and somebody who looks like a Guar fan is in this movie. I didn't know if those were them. They had their hoods up. They looked like they could be evil. It turns out to be the Jedi. They're going to visit these green-skinned dudes and big crowns who I'd bought action figures of. Nemoidians. Racist? <laughs> well, are we going to do this when we get to Jar Jar and we get to Watto? Yeah, when we get to each I mean, character? I think we are, actually. But those are big <laughs> topics. I'll put it this way. I think George Lucas starts at white and thinks of ethnicity as a colorful creation. And I feel like the Star Wars universe, it changes with these prequels, but by and large, with those originals, they were white people in a Muppet universe. And 
Racism implies that he thinks lesser of different ethnicities. I think that he likes his characters, but he doesn't, for some reason, build stories around darker-skinned human beings. Yeah, Red Tails, but that could have been reactionary. Later, yeah, exactly. But I do know a lot of people called out that the Nemoidians were talking in pidgin English, and they were all about money and taxation. People were equating them to Asians. I didn't see it until I read articles about it. I just took them as having a funny accent. Everybody in Star Wars seems to have a funny accent if you're in a plastic suit. Yeah, they they did come off Asian-sounding to me. I don't know if that necessarily makes them racist to have them sound like a certain ethnicity, but they had a tone to them. Yeah, it it isn't my problem with this setup. No, that's to be settled, I guess, with cultural academics at some university level. Social justice warriors could take it up on Twitter. Yeah, I I agree. And and I'm not trying to demean them. They, They may be right, but it's not the focus of what's going on here. What I'm having more of a problem with is that, okay opening of Star Wars, you got Darth Vader and Stormtroopers. You look at them, you know they're a threat. You know, he's lifting people up and choking them. That suit is scary. The droids in this, I mean, Roger, Roger, this is <laughs> this is not a threat that I would worry anyone stepping into. Lucas said that was intentional. He wanted the battle droids to not be good, so you'd understand why they went to humans later. They don't have to be so stupid, though. But I'll, I'll say this. Watching this with an eight-year-old who's seen it for the first time, she is cracking up when they say Roger Roger. So if he's making <laughs> this for kids, it is working. But I do like the battle here. I like when the battle droids start attacking. Sure, they're not that efficient, but there's so many of them. And then the destroyer droids come in, and those things are pretty badass. And I just love Qui-Gon cutting through that door. It was something I always wondered about the original movies. If a lightsaber can cut through anything, and here it's melting steel, it's instantly giving me the kind of Star Wars action I'd fantasized about that was hinted at in the first films. It's kind of fun to watch them use the force to just like knock these things down because they look so flimsy anyway. I mean, you you could almost Yeah, try buying the toys and getting them to stand up. (laughs) Actually, the ones from episode one did stand up. It's the recent ones that don't. (laughs) I never had the episode one toys. There's all those floppy remakes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what this does is it tells you that, yes, these two Jedi are going to supposedly be the focal characters for the story and that, all right, I'll bring it up. I know you're going to give me no answers that are satisfying, but there is a blockade around this planet of Naboo. What is going in and out of Naboo? What are they stopping from being sold or being bought? They're stopping food from getting to Naboo. Now, there's two parallel things going on here. The one is that Darth Sidious... He's the Phantom Menace? Yes, he's the Phantom Menace. He's the one operating behind the scenes. Ah, interesting. He's controlling the Nemoidians. The Nemoidians are working at his behest. He's empowered them in some way. He's got them by the short and curly somehow. So the real reason for the blockade is his means. The excuse for the blockade is that the Senate has taxed trade routes, which means it's cutting into the Nemoidian profits. And in protest... They're doing a legal blockade, preventing food from getting to Naboo, thus causing the people to starve and suffer. Which is weird because it says it's way out away from the center of the galaxy. It's it's an outlying planet. It doesn't seem like the most effective one to choose. Well, let me ask something here real quick. It's important. And I think I just need to spoil episode three for anyone who doesn't know. But Stuart, I mean, do you know, do you remember who Sidious is? 
Did you get it from this film? I think what you're asking me is later on, we're going to meet someone named Palpatine, who's the emperor, right? They don't say it in this movie, but he's the emperor. Yes. And because of that, what you have to realize is he's a senator at the start of this movie. He's the senator of Naboo. By causing their people to suffer and die and manipulating the queen into prompting a vote of no confidence in Zod, (laughs) then he's getting the sympathy vote. He's manipulating everything to become the ruler of the galaxy. That's the goal of all this. That's the Phantom Menace. It's convoluted. It's over-orchestrated. It's a plot worthy of Lex Luthor and Dr. No all in one. But that's the plan. They're trying to tell us how the Emperor got so much power. And that's, I think that's cool. I think that uh, I would like to see that journey. I think that prequels can be satisfying in that way. Reboots, some of the best ones are the ones that show you why the iconic things your heroes and villains have came into their possession. But I can't remember exactly when in this movie it clicked for me. It took a little while. But eventually I was like, wait a minute. If I put a hoodie on that guy, that would be the emperor. And <laughs> and then I was like, well, why aren't they telling me that? And am I supposed to know that or not? No, that's like the big reveal. That's, that's an even bigger secret than Darth Vader being Luke's father. Because that's going to get spoiled in this trilogy that you're supposed to watch first. Okay. Well, kind of. I mean, here's the thing. In all the expanded universe stuff... The Emperor was called Emperor Palpatine. And so coming into this, I knew the likelihood that the Emperor was Palpatine. And if you look at the credits, Darth Sidious and Senator Palpatine are both played by Ian McDermott. Didn't check that out. That wasn't the spoiler. But the thing that I wondered all the way up till episode three is if Lucas was pulling a bait and switch. Like because these books, which... Lucas was not beholden to, called him Emperor Palpatine, and because it's the same actor, are we supposed to think it's the same person, but it's not? Right. Turns out I was overthinking it. It is. Well, yeah, and and that was a possibility for me, because I'm like, there's doubles in this movie. Queen Amidala has a double. Sometimes it's her, and sometimes it's the handmaiden. So I wasn't entirely sure, even after I figured out that the guy that's trying to amass power in the Senate was exactly the guy in the hoodie talking to the Viceroy. It could have been his brother. Right. I was never sure that Darth Sidious was the Emperor. I was pretty sure... They certainly have the same fashion sense. Yeah, I just assumed that. (laughs) But I was always wondering if they'd pull a bait and switch. I gave Lucas a little too much credit. I overthought it. I hoped for twists that weren't there. But that's where I was with it. So he is the Phantom Menace. This taxation is all a cover. I don't think in three movies Lucas does a great job of explaining it. I have to thank James Luceno and... Troy Denning, and so many other Star Wars authors for writing books to explain this to me and making them more entertaining than parts of this movie. Okay, and so to be clear, he's doing it to his own people. Yes. He, as Palpatine, has chosen to punish his own people. He could pick any other planet in the world, but he's cutting off food to people that he knows and presumably respects that he governs because if he cut it off to anybody else he wouldn't get the sympathy vote yeah he needs the sympathy vote for emergency powers to become the new chancellor and take over plus he knows amidala is easily manipulated due to her young age okay and he's her advisor he'd be hard pressed to do something else 
I see. Okay. I accept that. I do wish the movie laid it out better, but maybe it will come later. You're saying no. Again, conceptually, I like this kind of stuff. As it's unfolding, these early scenes, not entirely satisfying, but not bad either. Bad doesn't really come for 13 minutes of this movie. And I want to say that throughout this entire film, the many times I watched it, the glaring questions that are never answered don't really get noticed because they are never answered. You don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about them when you're spending a whole lot of time jumping and lightsaber slashing and going up ventilation shafts and hiding on ships and running into Jar Jar. Yeah, don't forget a me. And this is as bad as they say it is. I just want to put it out there. You may argue, rightly so, that Phantom Menace is not as horrible as people have made it out to be, but Jar Jar is. I agree, Stuart. Wow, did he grate on me. He brought a smile to a child's face, though, when he's flipping into the pond and all his antics. Those are getting laughs from the children. Excuse me? That's a Wayne's World line. How can he do that? How can he, in good judgment, incorporate that into his universe? Well, he wanted something for his young children. And let me say, I think the Jar Jar hate is a bit overrated. There are two moments in this film that even on my first watching, I rankled. I'll tell you what they are right now. Jar Jar steps in a pile of crap. (laughs) That is so unnecessary. And then a space camel farts on him. And then a space camel farts on him. Biggest laughs for the children watching this. I, I'm, I'm just telling you. I have never been into fart humor. It is not my thing. Never cared for it. And those two moments, I really am embarrassed. If I were to phantom edit this, then I would cut those two things. Now, I know some people have taken the fan edits of this completely and said Jar Jar shouldn't speak English. And they put a foreign language there and they give him more intelligent subtitles that oh i like that that's a that is a better choice but i think that he's disruptive but no more so than c3po on Mm. empire strikes back i think he is the heir of a legacy of buffoonery and lucas said he wanted a buster keaton in this that's jar jar what have you seen the buster keaton movie no, that's, but that's, that is an outrage. I mean, that's just hiding behind references. You, Buster Keaton, my ass. I mean, squeeze me. Buster Keaton would have nothing to do with this. Okay. You go with Jar Jar and his goofy walk and he looks silly. It is that voice that does it. Just the mixing up his words. Yes. I don't know. There was something so grating about that. It is. You give him a different voice. I like the idea of redubbing him in an alien speak and giving him subtitles. He is such a stupid character. And I, I'm not speaking subjective. Objectively, he is a stupid character. Like yes. he breaks things wherever he goes. He's going to... He's clumsy. He's been banished because no one wants to have him around. He's too much of a liability. It's not that this is a cutesy character. You're right. We've seen Ewoks. We've seen C-3PO. If you want to pander to children occasionally, I think it's warranted. I think that that's good. Not everything needs to appeal to my sensibilities. The world is expansive. But this is a Jar Jar movie. There's not a scene that he doesn't stain for the rest of the film. When you pointed that out to me, I then noticed it. I had not noticed his constant omnipresence until you did say that to me years ago. 
Oh, no, they shove them into just about every frame. I really noticed it this time. I'm like, there's whole sequence, like, when he gets zapped, when the pod racer's getting built, why do they need that sequence? Why does he get farted on by a space camel? Like, I'll save some of my other criticisms, but I wonder so much about the whys with Jar Jar, why he is in so much of this film, because it's not needed. I mean, it can be said that part of the reason why he's in so much of this film is they were out to prove something with the special effects, right? They wanted to show that they could make a flesh and blood creation it hadn't been done before. Keep in mind, though, we've also got all the droids walking around. We've got all the animals walking around. But flesh and blood is different. It's, they run through the screen. Like with Jar Jar, you really have time to watch his movements and watch the animation, watch the computer graphics. And with that, especially the fabric, the fabric they do not have down in this film. And and, and there's some bad, bad fabric shots. I, I don't know why we're talking about fabric on <laughs> now playing, but it is so distracting how stiff like Boss Nass's robe looks in this film. Yeah, yeah, Boss Nass is so much worse than Jar Jar, the obese, blubbering, slobbering Gungan. Spitting. Gungans are bad in general. I, I don't... So... Here's, here's the other stereotype. You know, people accused that these were Caribbeans that George Lucas was mocking or, or using as a stereotype with their, yeah, their pigeon language again. You know, people see it there. I do kind of see it now that they pointed it out at the end when they're doing their big dance. I'm like, ooh, that is a little bit zippity doo dah. But. I just don't have the problem with him you guys do. I wish he were in it less. I do use him as a go-to reference for anything that a little of in a movie would be fine and a lot of is poisonous. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying is if this were marginalized to a C-3PO role, then I don't think we would be discussing it with the fervor and the amount of time we're, we're devoting to this. The problem is, is George Lucas devoted so much time to this. We have no choice but to acknowledge how much of this movie is about Jar Jar being silly. And yet, without Jar Jar... The entire Sith plot would have happened. If it wasn't for Jar Jar, the Jedi would have died on the way to through the planet core. If it wasn't for Jar Jar, they never would have even found the Gungans. Jar Jar is the hero of the movie? I don't even see that. You'll, you'll have to point it out. I'm not sure. I mean, when we talk about plot here, it is all very confusing. Yeah, the Jedi have wound up there because the Viceroys decided under the Emperor's guidance to kill them because... They're Jedi. Okay. They'll use their mind tricks to negotiate with them and end the blockade. I mean, that's not said, Stuart. I'm just, I'm bringing in my Star Wars knowledge and assuming. No, I, anything would help. I just, I didn't really understand why they were targeted so quickly. And all of a sudden, there's an insurrection on the planet where droids are invading and they want Naboo to be in chaos. They want to take over Naboo. Lord Sidious has sped along his plot because the Jedi have gotten involved. He, He's able to see everything. He's able to bring about all these machinations of trade negotiations and um, trade routes and all that. But yeah, he didn't see the Jedi showing up. So that has caused him to act in haste and hurry the invasion so he could put his plot into action. Yeah, and because he attacks them, they stow away on different ships to go down to the planet. And they land where they probably would have been killed by droids or at least never been able to reach the queen in time because they're on foot. And were it not for Jar Jar, they would have just been stuck out there in the woods, possibly dead. Wait a minute. They saved Jar Jar's butt. I mean. No, no. He owes them a life debt. They save him at the very beginning. Yeah. But then he takes them to the Gungans where it's safe and where they can get transport to feed. 
Arnie, I would buy this, this whole trip to the planet core. If we see Jar Jar do anything, but whoa, I'm going to freak out. Look at all these Cooper fish. Like he doesn't do anything to help the Jedi get through the core. He says he knows the way. It would have been nice to have a scene where Jar Jar actually did something helpful and we could justify this whole diversion. Yeah, I feel like the writer could have made a better choice. <laughs> you mean Lucas? Yes, how the Jedi could get to the princess. I mean, yeah, the whole point is they're going to leave the planet with her. That's all they have to do. I guess we're to think that if these two societies, the underworld Gungans and the humanoid... They have a symbiotic relationship. You must understand that one can't live without the other. I've been told that the Naboo and the Gungan, if they had better relations, they would have been able to fight off this droid invasion, right? It's droids. Yes. Well, the Gungans have a grand army and the Naboo just have some security volunteers and a couple of Jedi. But Stuart, it's smooth jazz. Yes, you could tighten all this up. I hate smooth jazz. <laughs> but then you wouldn't have Jar Jar. I want to know why there's not one fish that attacks them that's eaten by a bigger fish, but two fish that attack them that's eaten by a bigger fish. That always did bug me because it's like, yeah, did you he- Hey, guys, in the back, did you hear Qui-Gon? He said there's always a bigger fish. We'll, re- we'll redo it just in case you didn't notice. I honestly, this time with the now playing goggles, was like, are the fish a metaphor? Like, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are running from the little fish and don't realize the big fish that's out there? You know what? That would have been neat if they would have tied that into Darth Maul and they would have had that realization. I mean, they'll throw in a line for lip service, but it's never tied into this metaphor. I think that's what it is. I think that he drives it home with two. But yes, Darth Maul's the little fish. Darth Sidious is the bigger fish. Huh. Okay. I didn't put a whole lot of thought into it. I mean, again, I'm trying to remember what this story is about, and I I couldn't... It's good luck! Yeah, I couldn't remember what the importance of these two societies were. They're really only important in that they will help the Queen Amidala. I do notice something different coming to this trilogy as an adult versus a kid. Like, as a kid, Space Slug, amazing, that totally makes sense. Here, I'm, like, wondering why there are these giant fish that haven't just ravaged the land. Like, there are monsters that live under the ocean in Naboo. Tame some of those. Make them into rankers and attack the battle droids. Maybe they can only breathe water. I mean, I never question the existence of giant fish all the times I've watched this, Jacob. It's an alien planet. It would seem like a bad place for the Gungans to live. The circle of life. I feel like it's some, like... You know, Lion King kind of thing here they got going on. Keep in mind, that was a popular movie when Lucas was writing this. But when they get to Theed, I have to say, this is the kind of action I'd wanted for a long time. Ewan McGregor, I love him as a Jedi. He looks great in the younger Obi-Wan here. He really worked and lost his own Scottish accent to pick up Alec Guinness's British accent. He's using the force to push things. He's twirling that lightsaber with a cockiness I love. And Liam Neeson, who would have seen him going from Darkman to Schindler's List to Jedi? He looks miserable. It's that wig he's got to wear. It looks like he went on a bender and he woke up in a hair metal band. He's like, oh my God, (laughs) how did I get here? All right, I actually like his look, but I will recall in 99, and I had forgotten this till you said that, Stuart, he did this, and was it the house on Haunted Hill? (laughs) 
Really? He was in that? I guess he was, yes. And both those CGI fests, he came out and said he was retiring from acting. <laughs> he <right>. was done. <laughs> he looks very unhappy here. I don't get Alec Guinness Star Wars sage here. I get more like the Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi Ghost, Rolling My Eyes, Alec Guinness. <laughs> I was just going to say that, yeah. It's weird because Ewan McGregor, like, I do like him. He seems to be excited. He seems like one of the few actors that just seems to be excited to be in a Star Wars movie. Like, yeah. maybe he's a little too giddy for a stoic Jedi. But yeah, Liam Neeson, well, I don't know. We, we saw performances just like this with the original trilogy. So I went easy on them there. I'll, I'll go easy on him here, but it's not great. I think he's good in this. I really do. Maybe he didn't enjoy it. I don't get that from his performance. He's got a wry smile at times. He's got the right amount of seriousness. I love Qui-Gon Jinn. I love Liam Neeson as Qui-Gon Jinn. He becomes one of my all-time favorite Jedi for the entire series, and he's only in this one film. Yeah, that is strange choice here, but I can never pronounce his name. I, I disagree. I Ewan McGregor, I get. He is happy, and he's fun to watch. And I think you need a stern school marm to put him in line. I like that as of the relationship, but I don't look to Liam Neeson for much here. He doesn't seem to be doing anything really cool. But when they're using the force so casually, just pushing the droids down, using their lightsabers on the droids, this was the type of action that was hinted at in the original trilogy. But right here, as these droids are attacking and Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are quote-unquote sneaking into the palace, <laughs> I'm getting the kind of action I've wanted. You can't sneak anywhere when Jar Jar's with you. I, I hate it. Like, they jump down heroically, and I, who is it? Obi-Wan that does, like, that split double kick, and then you got Jar Jar, like, hanging by one foot on the balcony, tripping over everything. <laughs> I mean, we never get a, a moment that just this pure action. I feel like it is always undercut by Jar Jar comedy. We, we will at the end when Jar Jar's on the battlefield and we don't, we're hoping for his death. Yeah, but it took me like a dozen watchings to notice Jar Jar got stuck there. I'm just too busy looking at the kick-ass Jedi. Yeah, I, I just think that that is a different propensity. As you're looking at the Jedi, or maybe you're looking at the positive, half full, half empty, I can't not see Jar Jar. I don't, uh, there's not a scene here that we're going to talk about where I'm not paying attention to Jar Jar above all of it. There's a lot of scenes that don't have him. Later. Yeah. Yeah, later. With, with, then we get Jake Lloyd. <laughs> I, I got in my own issues with that. And that actually doesn't take too long. I mean, they get in there, they get the queen, Natalie Portman. We haven't ragged on her yet. <laughs> no, we haven't ragged on her in a while. I, or Except in Thor and Thor 2. <laughs> We've ragged on her plenty in other shows. Yeah, you've, you've insinuated she's the worst performance of the entire series. Behind the scenes fact, she was miserable on this set. She was a teenage girl. She signed up for this. She was told it would be good for her career. She was off in Tunisia for long periods. She was not allowed her entourage. She was not allowed her friends. She w didn't have anyone her age on set. So she decided, I'll show them I won't act. It shows us. Ah! 
Luckily, she's in a George Lucas film, so she doesn't need to. Yeah, exactly. Can't they just digitally change her face to make it better <laughs> acting? The shocker is that even though I was protesting this movie because I was mortified that it would undervalue what actors contribute, I don't see any fixes for the bad acting that is universally throughout this movie. Across the board, with the exception of Ewan McGregor, everyone's pretty flat. And where were the computer programmers to help that? <laughs> you can't fix a performance. Actually, you can nowadays. They did some subtle stuff. Later on, when Qui-Gon has a scene with Shmi, they felt like it wasn't selling. So they digitally added a hand to Shmi's shoulder so that it looks like Liam Neeson put his hand, a comforting hand on her shoulder. So they did tweak little things like that. But if they're giving flat line readings and not emoting in their face, you'd have to almost, like, Polar Express this to fix it. <laughs> well, that's what I thought they were going to do, but they, they haven't gotten there yet. My understanding was they could take the best takes if her nose crinkle was better in take 30 and her lip, you know, was better in 28. They could combine those and you get that. They did. This is the best of all takes. <laughs> Wow, then that really does show a problem. I do wonder if her performance, part of it at least, you know, the, this flat, the way she talks, no emotion. I, I always thought maybe that was part of the character. Like, the thing is, she has decoys. Sometimes she's the queen. Sometimes it's someone else. You wouldn't want to be real expressive. You'd want to be able to blend in. And so anyone can play your role. So I, I wonder yeah. how much of that has to do with the role. Later on, though, when we get to those other films, I'll be able to blame Portman more. Yeah, I don't know about the other films, but I don't think that she's the worst one here. I actually think her characterization of royalty and regalness fits. I mean, I'm not going to say it's good, but yes, that she sounds droning and dispassionate is probably the way you're going to get away with only playing the part part of the time, is that if everyone can mimic what she's doing here, so you won't notice when it's Kira Knightley and when it's Natalie Portman. But later, I had forgotten that she's going to be Luke and Leia's mama, that she's going to get in bed with Vader. Her scenes with Jake Lloyd, I'm super creepy. I just, I couldn't even believe it. Well, how old is the queen supposed to be in this film? If Anakin is nine or ten, how old is... Padme. 14, according to all canonical sources. So she's oh, only wow. like four years older than him. Okay. She looks so much older. Right? But she was a teenager when they were filming this, because I assume she was older than a teenager. She was about 16 when they were filming it. So there's, you know, two years is a big difference in a teenager from 14 to 16. But if they were filming this 97, 98, she was born in 81. So she was a teenager. They just took two to three years off her age. Part of the problem is... And I imagine we have Luke Bassan to thank for this, <laughs> is that she's never been childlike on screen. All the way from the professional, she has always been eroticized and really made womanly beyond her years. I mean, that was the shock of watching the professional was how much she looked like a mature woman when she was only, yeah, 12 or 13. And that there's this relationship she has with this older man that, yeah, it's, it's challenging in that film. So by the time we get to her here, and this movie is what, five years beyond the professional, I'm thinking she's 30. I mean, like, I'm just not <laughs> <laughs> noticing that she's still a child that you're saying she's 14 lets me think that this is miscasting then because i never thought of her as a 14 year old girl in this movie is there an in-story reason like did the naboo 
elect teenage girls to rule their country for some reason? Or does she happen to be an anomaly? No, it is always teenage girl queens who are elected. I thought it was more like a Last Emperor thing. She kind of looks like the Last Emperor in this movie, her outfits and all of that. I just assumed she kind of fell into that. She's elected? Yeah, she's a politician. Yeah, it's actually a democracy, even though she's a queen. Oh, this planet is screwed up. (laughs) (laughs) That's their problem. It ain't the Gungans. (laughs) That they have children run their country? Yeah, they deserve this. (laughs) The droids would be better. They should just let them in with open arms. (laughs) But, yeah, she is not good in this. She does not get better as the movie goes on. Even more, she broke her leg. (laughs) So there are scenes on Tatooine where she's walking with a noticeable limp and one leg's bigger than the other. (laughs) I wondered why she had a limp sometimes in those scenes. I thought that might have been Kira Knightley. I thought that was a tell (laughs) that I couldn't figure out. Yeah, Kira Knightley from Pirates of the Caribbean. I had no idea she was in this. Yeah, she is one of the handmaidens, one of the many handmaidens in this film. And I could not, until I just Googled before this, all the time that I have seen this, never knew when was it that Natalie Portman was in the makeup? When was it Kira Knightley? Under that makeup, I can't tell. They really do look alike here. And truthfully, I thought it was always Natalie Portman in the makeup. And then they CGI'd another Natalie Portman behind her. It's not like they didn't have the tech. Right. Oh, see, I figured they'd just get a double and dub her lines in because she talks so dispassionately. Like, why sit there and have to do all this makeup when you could just have someone... You know, that gets paid less to sit there and have to do it. But you definitely know when she's the handmaiden. I mean, yes. we can recognize Natalie Portman is this Padme. So I knew something was up coming back in this. I'm like, okay. So I think you even first viewing, you would recognize that she's playing a game here with her handmaidens and that it's not always her as the figurehead. You see, I think it's always her as the figurehead, except... Sometimes Natalie Portman's standing there, too, so it's not supposed to be her as the figurehead. I was wrong. It's Kira Knightley. Probably with Natalie Portman's dead voice dubbed over her. There are times, though, like, the Queen, obviously, Natalie Portman is standing there as Padme, and, like, the Queen will say something and kind of turn to her, and Padme will say something. I guess it's it's her secret language to show that the Queen actually does approve so that the fake Queen could say yes. I I, I noticed that going on here. Yeah, but it's such a strange code. What I absolutely love, though. Okay, the queen is in hiding as a handmaiden. The decoy is playing the queen. They grab that silver starship, escape, but they're shot. R2-D2 saves them. R2-D2's big introduction is he's one of many R2 units on the ship, the only one to survive. R2 saves all their lives. And then the fake yes. queen says, Padme, go clean yes. the droid. It makes no sense. <laughs> like, fake queen tells the real queen to go clean this, and she does. <laughs> yeah. And at what point does the queen tell her decoy, hey, I want some time alone with this droid? <laughs> Maybe it's just a contentious relationship. Maybe that handmaiden's really going to pay for that, but she don't care right now because she's wearing the crown. <laughs> I just always found that funny. But then they go to Tatooine, the most remote planet in the galaxy. If there was a bright center to the universe, this is the planet that is farthest from. And where there are three out of three movies, and in the end, it'll be five <laughs> out of six movies. Why did Lucas make this choice? Like, he could have had slaves on an outer planet 
anywhere. Why do we go to Tatooine? This is what when it really starts to bug me. So Vader's he knows where he's from. He knows where his aunt and uncle are from. He's never gonna look for his son like on this plant. Like, ah, oh, it it bothers me so much. All right, here's what I'll give it. Luke had an aunt and uncle on Tatooine. They were really his aunt and uncle. I never questioned the blood relation. So it would make sense that Luke's father, who I assumed was Owen's brother, was from Tatooine. I think I just took it that way. While I'm like, okay, we're going to Tatooine a lot, it makes a kind of sense. And this is completely by accident. In this episode one, they're there because their ship got shot up and they need a part. No hyperdrive. Yeah. Or it's the will of the Force. Ah, okay. <laughs> you can always chalk Desex Machinub to the will of the Force. Okay. Well, you can. Yeah. All right. But the point is, they're stuck here until they get a part. And so we have a big act two, which is all about getting money to buy a part off of a French... Moth. <laughs> no, French. Come on. Stereotype number three. And I, I, I'll say this. I'm watching this with my wife who had never seen this film before. And you get this guy with this big nose and he's sitting there talking about money. And she's like, this is racist. I, Lucas got away with depicting a Jew this way. She had no idea what the controversy was with Watto. And she just threw it out like she picked up on that one. It's not French. That's what I took it as. Yeah. But some people said because he was after money and the accent that he was like Yiddish. It was like Merchant of Venice going on here. Okay. Well, you can make the case for both. And I think if you're building a case against Lucas, if you've been offended by the racial portrayals of other creatures, this is just more fuel for that fire. I guess I just am not burning to tar and feather Lucas as racially insensitive that's that's not what i'm here to do and i agree i i don't see it i i think it's going to get even more ridiculous the claims that are going to be made with attack of the clones but yeah i, I think this is people looking for something you got to wonder what what are you assuming of certain races if you're seeing these things and attributing negative things maybe that's something you're bringing into it they have to have some ethnicity someone with an ethnicity is going to voice that creature so Yes, being selective about what it is and making sure it doesn't feed into a stereotype that's offensive, probably a good idea, but I felt like there was enough French influence, Franco influence here with this creature that it felt international to me. I mean, it didn't feel like any one culture. But but we are in a desert environment, and I think that, you know, maybe that we're expecting a trader that we would expect in the Middle East here. Maybe, maybe that is an influence here. I could see that as a possible influence. What I find most offensive, I don't understand. It really stuck out to me. Why do they take Jar Jar? There's no reason to take him. They have R2. That makes sense. He has the schematic readouts of the ship, so they could get the new hyperdrive. Qui-Gon, great. He's a Jedi. He's going to go get that thing. Padme wants to go along secretly, you know, to, to see what's going on as the queen. I could buy that. I don't understand why Jar Jar needs to tag along, especially when we get Jake Lloyd for the next hour. Oh, my God. Yeah, you can't have both on screen. That is just it burns your eyes. But yet I think that's what they're going for is a kid and his friend, you know, make it R2. R2 was always the kid friendly thing. The only thing I can equate it to, and this isn't a good reference, but I know there's other stories that are better, but drop dead Fred, the little girl with her oh, obnoxious imaginary friend. Yes, you picked a bad one. <laughs> but it has a Star Wars connection with Carrie Fisher. But I don't know why they take him. Maybe he'd do more damage on the ship, but they do go into the planet and 
They take the Handmaiden, and the thing I always wonder, I suspect he does, because he's a Jedi and he's a badass, but does Qui-Gon know that he's taking the Queen with him into Tatooine, or does he think it's just a Handmaiden? I think he thinks it's just a Handmaiden, you know. Yeah, I'm not confused about this. I know that this is Natalie Portman going off to have an adventure, and I never think about what Liam Neeson thinks, because I never think about him in this movie. He seems entirely functional. I I have no idea what he thinks. I think he wants to be drunk. That's what I think. He wants to go to the canteen. No, no, <laughs> come on. I mean, you can't say he's functional. He's the driving force behind why Anakin is taken to the council. He sees Anakin, and he thinks he's this prophesized chosen one who will bring balance to the Force. And so he schemes, even though he says himself, we're not here to rescue slaves, he schemes to get Anakin freed from Watto. He takes him to the Jedi. He demands Anakin be trained. He says that when the Jedi won't train him, he's going to train him on his own. It's like a bad boss. I feel so bad for Obi-Wan when Liam's like, well, fine, I'm going to take him. It's like, I'm firing Obi-Wan, I'm taking Anakin. But he is the driving force. You cannot say he's just functional. It's his characterization that matters so much. That came really late. I just want to say, yeah, that him coming to the council and being like, we have a chosen one. I'm like, chosen? Who... Who was talking about prophecy? No one was until that moment. That was like way out of left field. I had no idea even what the hell they were talking about. And that comes hours into this movie. For what we're going to get right now, he's just kind of the entourage that's waiting to buy a part. What about the fact that Anakin's immaculately conceived? The fact that he is Jesus Christ, the Immaculate Conception, is infuriating to me. Worse than Jar Jar. I could deal with Jar Jar. I could enjoy this film watching Jar Jar in almost every scene. The fact that Darth Vader is like evil space Jesus. It makes no sense. It just, it's like Lucas is like, yeah, I can't think of a name for the dad, so Immaculate Conception. There's a couple of things going on here. First of all, I too, being raised American and around Christians, immediately thought of Jesus. How can you not? But according to Lucas, there's a lot of immaculate conception <laughs> in mythology. But I took this as a mystery that may be revealed. It is kind of revealed in episode three. We will return to the discussion of Anakin's parentage. But here, I'll admit I was kind of irked by it. I kind of wish he was more normal. You want to see Hitler as a kid? Well, it's not like Hitler was immaculately conceived, right? You, you want to start with a normal kid, not a prophesized chosen one. I don't have a problem with it either way. Whatever Lucas wants to do in this. This is a movie about Darth Vader. In my mind, this is a trilogy about telling me who Darth Vader is. Whatever he's got in mind, I'm going to go with. Right now, it's a little weird, but okay, let's see what he does with it. As for the midichlorians that created Anakin... This bothered me even then, because I grew up, now this may be the fact that I was a fan as a child of the originals, but the way it was sold to me is that anyone could be a Jedi through training, meditation, I mean, the Force is strong in someone, maybe you have more of a propensity than others, but that the Force is in all living beings. Now here, it's a birthright, if you don't have the right parasite, you're not going to be able to be a Jedi, that kind of sucks. I didn't have a problem with midichlorians in this film because I've, oh, yeah, you know, maybe that's just your potential. Some, you know, some people are better at baseball naturally than other people, and some people may be better at the force naturally than other people. I That's how I read it. I thought, hey, maybe this will be explored further on in the 
maybe later in this film or maybe later in the other films. But like many of the menaces and mysteries brought up, nope, it's not going to get explained. And when it became problematic for me is when we're going to find out that Darth Vader is going to lose all these limbs. And wait, that means he has less blood, which means he has less midichlorian. How does he even use the four? Like, Actually, George Lucas explained that and said the Emperor was always unhappy with Vader as an apprentice because he lost all those limbs and thus was weaker in the Force. And so he was always on the hunt for a newer, younger model. And and I feel like Lucas is doing what I used to do a lot after these prequels came out and go, no, no, but no, here's the explanation. I know it's not in the movie. I know there's nothing to justify this. But if you just make this theory up, then it all makes sense. The problem is none of this is in the story. I'll put it this way, and it's kind of my feeling about the divine birth, too. It, it's interesting. It, what it does is it leads me to believe that he's ready to take on a more scientific definition, as opposed to last trilogy, it was just magic. And it was spiritual. You know, it was something you could conjure like a prayer. Here, it, it implies that George Lucas wants to explain the mechanics of how things work. And so he's piqued my interest. I leave it at that. For this movie, all that we're going to get of it, I want to know more. That It doesn't feel necessarily like a birthright. It just feels more like some people are more afflicted than others. It's it's in all things. We can all develop this as a power. It's not going to say some can't do it, but that there are some people that are going to be more prone to it. So if you want to learn the Force, you probably have more midichlorians. It doesn't really change anything. It doesn't feel unfair. I also just don't like that you can find a Jedi with a blood test. It seems like a real easy way for the Empire in the earlier films to wipe out Jedi is by just having mandatory blood tests at birth and killing children with high midichlorians. I mean, that's... This is why Jim Carrey is against vaccinations. It's all a plot to get rid of potential <laughs> Jedi. Yeah, I agree. So, it irked me then. It's still not my favorite thing. It's like, I can force it out of my brain and just choose to ignore midichlorians as Disney is doing. More problematic to me than midichlorians, as, as far as Darth Vader goes, is... And I guess we discussed this, why is he a 10-year-old in this film? But when Jake Lloyd as Anakin is introduced at Watto's shop, I mean that you're going to talk about are you an angel aren't you oh it's it's so and you know what I don't blame Jake Lloyd like yippee like he's a child being paid to say lines he's a child that got the job though I mean this is not someone you call back they had thousands of actors they did tryouts for months and this was the best they had that's a shock what I'm saying is, if I'm going for an acting role now and I, I see these kind of lines, I can say, eh, nope, not going to do this movie. That That's embarrassing. He, he was a kid picking this. I would say this. Whenever you see a child give a great performance, be it Sixth Sense or Beast of the Southern Wild, you know, you got to credit the director as much as the kid. I'm not trying to... Natural talent is inherent, and I'm sure it's helpful that when some kids really know how to mimic and do it, but you really need a good director to direct children here. So the fact that Jake Lloyd is as awful as he is on screen, I'm really going to put to Lucas. Yeah, no, I agree. He should have been cast, and he should have given better performances, and if this is what they were getting, they should have used the computers to fix it. I agree. I also think that it's hard for a 10-year-old to know what to do when he's just told do it faster and more intense. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that what we're seeing here across the board, even Ewan McGregor is not great. He's having fun. He's committed where I feel like a lot of people are checked out. But I don't think that this acting is very good at all. And I felt that was kind of true of Star Wars, the original, with the exception of Harrison Ford. 
It's just George Lucas is not great with actors, and it leads to a very sterile kind of environment. But again, Portman has admitted herself she chose not to act. Here, Lloyd, I do blame the director for. I think McGregor and Neeson are doing well. I think the voice actors are doing well. You gotta say I'm at best committed to the part. <laughs> okay. Again, a dire- director's fault for choosing that performance. Correct. And writing the character and putting him in everywhere he did and not having moderation, yes. This is basically an auteur film. Lucas wrote, Lucas directed. Creative choices fall to one person and one person only. Yeah. I mean, he had total creative control. He went around with a rubber stamp and approved every design here. This is... Lucas's brainchild, and he's playing jazz, and so we're going Stop to get. Stop a- saying that. I like jazz. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're going to get a whole bunch of meandering on Tatooine to get to a pod race, and this was so sold hard in the trailers and in interviews. I knew there was going to be this massive pod race. I had no idea how inconsequential it really was to the movie or how long it would go or that Greg Proops would show up, but I knew it was coming. Here's the thing. I grew up on Ben-Hur because of my dad. It's one of his favorite films. So I, I actually love this pod racing scene. The, the actual race. Why do all the pod racers, they don't even look like potential aliens like Ben Quadineros. They look like Cartoon characters, that two-headed announcer, they're all so cartoonish looking. I, I, again, I guess it's a kid's film, but it's so weird Quite that- Quadineris looks like the clock from Beauty and the Beast. I mean, that does not look like from the <laughs> yes, Star Wars universe. that's it, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> and I love Ben Quadraneros and his little facial expressions and when he's pounding on the thing. I do think that Lucas has a bit too much of everything. Not one racer is stalled at the beginning, but two, both Anakin and Quadraneros are stalled. Why is Quadraneros stalled? I guess it's more comedic relief, but I think that it's redundant, too. The pod race, to be fair, is the first time where I felt like the movie had some energy to it. I mean, I felt like this first, and I think it's been like 55 minutes, an hour, have been pretty lethargic. But this is a moment for Jake Lloyd to shine without having to act. So I think that's probably why this is the best scene in this movie. As, as a fan, I don't know about you, Arnie, but as a Star Wars fan, the, the fact that we get to see, what, Jabba the Hutt and his wife? Is that who that's supposed to be? She's That's got- Gardula the Hutt, who is... Anakin's previous slave owner. Ah, okay. Yeah, I know they dropped that name at some point. What I've heard Star Wars fans say is it shrinks the universe. Yeah. We're going to see Jabba, Bib Fortuna. Before this series is over, we're going to see Chewbacca. Really? It just seems like too many people show up too often. Yeah, to have one or two characters show up is fine, but I agree. You have too many, and by the end of this prequel trilogy, way too many original character is going to show up. Yeah, I do feel like that is going to be the burden of... I remember Boba Fett comes back in a big way next movie, and I just feel like that's stuff that the books could do, right? That's stuff that the expanded universe could get into. And that's not what I wanted out of this movie. I wanted a movie that explained to me why Darth Vader turned to the dark side. And boy, we're not getting that. Look, this is the best Jake Lloyd's going to be, having a wind machine blow wind in his face and, and act like he's driving. He's, I like it. Yeah, let's, let's, let's leave it with a compliment here. This is the best scene in the movie. It's the best moment for this small child because he doesn't have to do too much. 
And aside from the fact that it's giving me nothing of the story I want to hear from, I think it's fun to watch. I think his best moment actually comes before the pod race. There's one moment that is genuinely touching to me, and I still get chills when I watch it all oh, these many times later. That's when he's putting the pod racer together, and Qui-Gon gives him the power source, and he fires it up, and the music swells, and the engine roars, and he yells, it's working. As for the pod race itself, I like the action. But like everything in this movie, I find it to be a little redundant. Three laps. How many times are we going to see the same engine crash the same way, flipping end over end? Again, this is Ben Burt's big scene to shine. I love the engines of the pod racer. Everyone sounds different, but I think it's a little too cartoonish. Sebulba is possibly the Jar Jar for me of this movie. You guys hate Jar Jar so much. I think Sebulba is, he's literally a mustache twirling villain and He's a murderer. He's a Doug, and an especially dangerous Doug. Yeah, well, I like the pod race. I like the action. I have a lot of fun watching it. It's not the high point of the movie. It's not the best scene of the movie. That comes much later at the climax. But it's really good, <laughs> just overly long. <laughs> you have to admit, it's kind of funny you're saying the best thing it comes at the end. I mean, th that's a way of saying that nothing really is happening in this movie. And I think we're all in agreement of that, that this pod race is fun, but it's too long. I, I would say that about this movie. Yeah, th there's exciting things that happen, but then really boring things that happen in between. Like, there are moments I've enjoyed, and then there's really boring stuff like, because Boato won't take Republic credits, he needs something more real, like... I want the scene where Obi-Wan's, like, digging through the princess's wardrobe. Like, they drop that line, like, oh, they have some of her clothes. I, I want to see him appraising that. Like, that's the kind of stuff going on between these exciting scenes. Like, I I've enjoyed the action parts of this. It's when there's not action going on that this film is failing me. But I got to tell you, I completely forgot that Natalie Portman and Jake Lloyd are going to make babies. <laughs> I didn't know. Let's just be clear. It was never certain that Portman was the mother. Widely hypothesized. I knew Jake Lloyd was going to be Luke's father. I didn't know who the baby mama was. I wouldn't know until the next film for sure, but they yeah. sure do play this up like they're supposed to hook up. I mean, you can't have a hookup between a 10 and a 14-year-old. It, it would be weird. I, maybe my girl in space. But yeah, my girl. Yeah. I don't know. It's even I don't know. It's not even that age appropriate. I mean, yeah, he like carves or something or something. A Japur snippet. What's wrong with a Japur snippet? No, it was the moment where I realized we're supposed to be thinking they're falling in love. That is where I'm like, oh, my God, this is wrong. You don't set that up yet. You don't go there yet. That's ridiculous. Well, I took it as one directional. He loved her. And as a little boy, I often developed crushes on teenage girls. So... I went with that as well. It's like, I think it's normal for a boy to want to get with a developed woman. And her smile when she receives it let me know that she was thinking likewise. I didn't read that face that way. And what I'm looking for, we're halfway through this film. I'm looking for a character arc, like, with the first Star Wars film, like, it's all about Luke's journey. What is the focal point here? It, it's such a, a jazz, Jacob, jazz. Oh, that's right, jazz, yeah. No, I want a character arc, especially if this is about Darth Vader. I want to learn something about him at age 10 if you're going to force me to watch a 10-year-old Darth Vader. Like, he loses his mom. There it is. The deal is that she can't come with, even though they could, like, steal her away. Like, there's no real reason. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Like, and, and we're going to deal with his mom in the next film. That's what I'm saying. Whether or not I recommend this film, 
I don't know how necessary it is for the story of Darth Vader. I don't know what I learn about him, except that Obi-Wan considers being a good pod racer a great pilot. And my thing is that I don't see him as a good kid. There's many times where he makes that pensive hate face. He does it here on Tatooine. He is egotistical to Sebulba. And then when he goes in front of the Jedi Council later on, he looks with his face like, I'm going to kill you, Yoda. So... I don't see him as a good kid who's going to go bad. I don't know if it's the way he was directed or just the performance he's given, but he comes off like a petulant jerk who I wouldn't trust with the Force. But before we get to Coruscant, there's a big plot hole that involves a major character. Qui-Gon leaves the ship and says, whatever you do, don't send a transmission. If you send a transmission, they can trace us here. And then C.O. Bibble, who was the Queen's right-hand man, sends a message to them that says, our people are dying, you must contact us. And Captain Panaka, Queen's head of security, says, don't respond. The next thing you know, Darth Maul and Sidious are out on the balcony enjoying the view, saying, they're on Tatooine. Darth Maul, the first thing you think of when you think of Phantom Menace. Really? Elf. Hell, yeah. Coolest thing about Phantom Menace, Darth Maul. Most badass character, Darth Maul. The packaging. Barely in this thing. The icon, the Darth Vader of this movie is Darth Maul. Every toy had Darth Maul on it. Because no one would have bought it if it was the true icon, Jar Jar. And it was sold to us like Darth Maul was going to be the Vader of this trilogy. We thought that Darth Maul was going to carry throughout the entire series. Now, Luke Lucas later came out and said he doesn't want anyone to match Vader, so each film will have a new nemesis. But I thought Maul was it. The marketing told me Maul was it. And Maul, they bring him back in the Clone Wars cartoon series from being cut in half because he's so badass people want more. All right. First of all, I think he looks stupid. I think the whole face, the all of it, I just think it's too obvious. I'm like, oh, it's satanic looking. Okay, well, that that's just too on the nose. Those are supposed to be tattoos. As for the horns, he's a Zabrak. They have horns. We'll see more in this series. Okay. But the tattoos are all him. I feel like it is an obvious way of trying to make someone look scary. And I don't think he has any opportunity to look scary. Like, he takes forever. He sends out the drones. It takes him forever to figure out where this kid is. The kid everyone knows he's racing the pods but he's not looking for the kid he's looking for the queen yeah oh he's looking for the queen it doesn't really matter how he got there but when he gets there it should be a threat it should be a menace it is he jumps off that speeder and he goes to battle with qui-gon he's got that huge lightsaber I love this fight. It's not as good as the one later. It's a tease, you know? It's a slip of the nipple during dinner to know what you're going to get later. I love it. Wow. Okay. I don't know what kind of dinners you yeah, have. But. <laughs> I, I, Honest to God, I, I forget Darth Maul is in this movie. I mean... How? Oh, my lord. Because he doesn't matter. Because it, what, he has two scenes that with peripheral characters that are not Darth Vader. He has like six scenes all told, and one of them is with Darth Sidious, where he gets to speak his classic line, At last we will reveal ourselves to the Jedi. At last we will have revenge. That voice, by the way, is quite obviously not Ray Park, but it's in fact 
the first zombie roommate from Shaun of the Dead. <laughs> that would have been a really cool line if we knew what they were getting revenge for. Like, if anything about the Sith was built up and told to us. But I guess the menace is a phantom here, and we're not going to be told anything. We're going to have to guess or wait for another film. I don't need to be told anything. I see the guy in the hoodie. I know he's bad. And so he's sending the first Darth. I'm like, okay, this is the first Darth. Before there was Vader, there was this guy. Technically, the first Darth was Darth Bane 5,000 years ago. Do you care? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hate that every bad guy has the name Darth. It's a title. It's not a name. Yeah, I still don't like it. Well, it's helpful for me because I'm not going to read these books. So I figure they're, yes, exactly that. They're giving us the movies, the trilogies, perhaps, Darth Vader. This little sand fight is stupid. No, it's too short. I, I like it. I'll agree with you, Arnie. I do like this fight. Again, anytime there's action going on, I'm enjoying it in this film. It's what I love about Star Wars. I I don't approach this as, you know, Star Trek science fiction. It's, yeah, a space fantasy. And so I like this stuff, you know, when he's jumping off his speeder bike and this whole fight. It, it's a little too short. I, I All told, what, 30, 40 seconds we're talking about here? No, I agree, Stuart. I wish we get more of a menace from Darth Maul here. I wish we saw the Jedi quaking in their boots. But this is Liam Neeson. This is Qui-Gon Jinn, who's a total badass this whole movie, finally facing something he can't easily defeat. It sets him up as formidable, so now we know there is a threat that the Jedi can't overcome. And earlier, it's been kind of set up. I knew Qui-Gon was dead meat the first time I saw this, thanks to the soundtrack that had the song Qui-Gon's Noble End. I didn't think his end was retirement. But here, they set it up when he was having that dinner with Anakin, and Anakin says, no one can kill a Jedi. And Qui-Gon's like, I wish that were true. And now we see this. If you didn't buy the soundtrack, you know this is Qui-Gon's end. Qui-Gon, Darth Maul, barely in this movie. Not the movie that I think of when I think of Phantom Menace. You, you know what? Who's barely in this movie for me? Because there's two characters that like are the through line for Star Wars, and that's R2 and C-3PO. And here, C-3PO, he gets a cameo. What does Anthony Daniels do in this film? Only provide a voice acting for the character? Because it's obviously a puppet walking around. Yeah, it's an amazing puppet, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's an amazing puppet. But I always thought, like, R2 and C-3PO, they should be the timeless characters that just travel through these storylines. But no, we're even going to get an origin for 3PO here. I don't like that. Th I don't like that Vader is 3PO's father. That bothers Ugh. me. No, no one does. That is too much binding. That is Lucas trying too hard to connect too many characters in the same way. It does. It shrinks the universe. It makes what used to feel expansive feel like, oh, there's just 12 people in this universe and everyone else is just the audience. Now, Coruscant was something I was so glad they kept from the expanded universe. And they go to the Jedi Temple like this. You want to know more about the Jedi, if especially if you're a big Star Wars fan. Like, th they were just hinted at. There was the return of the Jedi. That's what it was all building up in that prequel trilogy. Now we get to see them in their full glory. And it's a little underwhelming. I think they're jerks. I don't know if Lucas intentionally made the Jedi this secular, closed-off up their own butts group. But man, I mean, first of all, you get Samuel L. Mofo Jackson here to just drop line deliveries. He's 
Every bit as bad as Jake Lloyd. How did Lucas get Samuel L. Jackson to give this poor of a performance? Now that's directing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you get him there doing nothing. Yoda, you guys saw the CGI Yoda that looks a lot better than the puppet they used to use that looked like he had jaundice and an overbite. Oh, they used a puppet? Yeah, in the Blu-ray, he's a complete CGI. Oh, yeah, I had no idea that that this had a puppet origin, so it, so it didn't work. Yeah, he looks real weird. That's disappointing, but then again, with... So much of this being CGI, it's probably the right choice. Yeah, they wanted Frank Oz to puppeteer. They got him back. They wanted to keep Yoda puppeted. And they wanted to have an evolution so he'd go from looking younger to looking like he does in the movies. But in the end, he just looked really odd in this movie. Yeah, he's 900 years old. 30 years isn't going to make a difference in that lifespan. Make him look the same. But I just don't like the Jedi Order. Again, maybe part of it's that I grew up thinking that Jedi were spread across the universe as guardians, that they were one master, one apprentice, and they were kind of independent. It's so sterile. Yeah, it's like they are the bureaucracy. We're supposed to complain about the bureaucracy in the Senate, but this is so bureaucratic and high-minded. It's like... Is Lucas trying to tell us, the books will make this statement, but is Lucas's opinion that the Jedi have become so high-minded and egotistical that they deserve the fall they're going to get? Well, that brings to question the prophecy. Like, you believe this boy is the one prophesied about. He's going to bring balance to the Force. If it's all just Jedi, doesn't balancing the Force mean bringing more evil into the world? What does it mean to balance the Force? Was that the doom of the Jedi? Well, a lot of people said what you said. If there's one Sith and a whole bunch of Jedi, balance is killing the Jedi. But Lucas says the prophecy of the One is fulfilled. That when Vader kills the Emperor in Return of the Jedi and thus himself dies, it has eliminated the Sith from the galaxy and the Force finally has balance because there's no evil. That's not balance, though. I, I I don't know. To me, that is not balance. I never thought too hard about Jedi and what they might be before uh, they were all wiped out. I'm more curious to know why this order collapses. Yeah, they look unfunctional. I guess that is what we're seeing here, is that this is that government diplomacy, bureaucracy, all of it fails. Even Natalie Portman, like, she doesn't want war. She spent all of this effort to come all the way across the galaxy to plead her case, and they're going to put her on the train right back to where she's going from. I'm like, why did she even go? (laughs) Well, yeah, she chooses to go. She came because Palpatine had convinced her that by coming here, she could get the Senate to intervene and end the blockade so her people wouldn't starve to death. And when they won't do anything because there's no proof, I guess they needed to take some selfies before they left. You know what? I do kind of buy that. Like, you look at how our government functions. Or doesn't. Or Yeah, exactly. There's things that seem obvious, and then they're like, nope, we need to have a committee on this for 17 years to figure it out. Like, it seems ridiculous, but I do kind of buy it, knowing how government works. And of course, Chancellor Valorum. I thought he'd be a much bigger deal. I mean, heck, it's Zod here. I mean, Terrence Stamp as the ruler of the galaxy. I love him in this. He does nothing but his commanding voice, his stature, just the regalness with which he carries himself. He is really great, and I wish he had more to do. Is he here because we're supposed to think he's evil and thus <laughs> maybe that he is the Phantom Menace or something? Because, yeah, you see Terrence Stamp, you immediately assume he's going to be a part of the bad 
guy plot. But no, he's just ineffectual, or at least he's being framed as ineffectual so that Palpatine can take over. Or Palpatine is making him ineffectual. Yeah, it doesn't truly matter. It's not cinematic the way that these orchestrations are happening. So we can't really care. It's it's intrigue for intrigue's sake. I do love seeing the Senate, though, because we've talked about the Senate in episode four. For 22 years, the Senate has been a mystery. I'm glad we get to see the Senate that the Emperor dissolved. It's more exciting than the Jedi Temple, unfortunately. Yes, it is. It's cooler looking. Yeah, but do you think that, I mean, obviously he didn't have it really worked out, but do you think that it's worth finding out if what you're seeing is this? I mean, wouldn't it be better, I guess, I guess what I'm really leading up to is, wouldn't it be better to have it remain episode four being the first and to have gone beyond Jedi rather than go back if what we're going to get back is so diminished. I mean, is there anything that you have experienced in this episode one that makes you think, oh, wow, this is better than what I could have imagined? Just Darth Maul. <laughs> I'm actually going to agree with you. I'm going to agree with Artie there. I was just about to say it. Like Just Darth Maul. And Darth Maul's not that great. He's just better. He's pretty great. That double lightsaber is great. Yeah, he's pretty badass. My problem, Stuart, is when I imagine the lead up to... Darth Vader becoming Darth Vader. It didn't have to do with the 10 year old kid. It didn't have to do with anything that's happening in this movie. And mm-hmm. again, we, we, Arnie and I both said it. This movie ultimately doesn't matter. Yes. Whether it's good or not is a different story, but no, I would have started later. I, this isn't the starting point for me. So I never imagined what's happening here. Episode one should be foundational, and this feels peripheral. I mean, this feels like a a subchapter of a better movie. But I think it is foundational in that a lot of the things that are set up here, the Senate, Jar Jar, Anakin, these are things that are going to come back in later prequels. Yeah, but you could have set them up in later prequels. And set them up in a better, more satisfying way. Like, there's not here that takes so much setup that you need a whole film for. Yeah. The writing in this, the directing's bad, but the writing in this is worse. I agree. This film does not fulfill all it could. And there is a fan edit out there that I have seen that takes the entire prequel trilogy and edits it into one four-hour Lord of the Rings-like yeah. experience. I have watched this. I watched some of it this week. Yeah. yeah. I watched it quite a while ago when a friend of mine sent me the link. And admittedly, The Phantom Menace is like 10 minutes of ah. it in flashback. <laughs> yeah, you just use it maybe to reference something in the past. Exactly. I, 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 I'm glad that people are feeling this because that's the crazy thing about me. I'm like, am I wrong in thinking that like nothing here fulfills what we would imagine if we grew up on that original trilogy? Nothing. There's just nothing here that does it. And I'll preview something from the Revenge of the Sith podcast. My biggest frustration with Lucas is that he didn't plan out his trilogy. He knew an ending point. Which he did with the first trilogy, too. He didn't plan it out. Right. But here he knew it was going to end with Anakin getting knocked into a lava pit. He had said that way back in 83. That's what happened to Anakin. That's why he was Vader. It was originally scripted that Obi-Wan was going to say that in Jedi. Maybe Guinness didn't want to say that line. But he knew it was going to end. But my big problem as we go through this entire prequel trilogy is it is so ill-paced. The first two movies should be one movie, and the third movie should be two movies. 
I mean, so little of import happens in part one and part two that you can splice them together. If you had Hayden Christensen doing the entire performance and Anakin wasn't 10 and still too old. How, what about Luke? When they said Luke was too old, I didn't think it was because he was too, not two. I mean, what kind of recruiting or cradle robbing are they doing? They kidnap children, yeah. the Jedi. But it's Lucas's revisionist history and his smooth jazz that creates <laughs> this. And it is what it is. It's going to show us a lot of things that I wanted to see as a Star Wars fan for so long. It's going to bring Liam Neeson and make him part of the universe. It's going to show me the Senate and the Council, but it's not really going to propel the plot very much. And so we're going to go back to Naboo because we got nothing better to do. Right. And we need an action-packed climax. And I said, in Star Wars, there's a one-thing-at-a-time climax. There's the lightsaber fight, and then there's the space battle climax. Empire? Lightsaber fight during the space battle climax. Return of the Jedi. Lightsaber fight during the space battle climax, which hinges on the land battle. But here, he's just going to up it again. Four-pronged attack. Space battle, which helps support the land battle, which is a cover for the infiltration, which will spin off into a lightsaber fight. <laughs> and Darth Vader is where? I think he's flying around in a ship that accidentally winds up in space. Well, no, what's so funny is, like, he's hanging out with Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan and Padme as they're, like, shooting lasers. He's got no weapon, got no shield, and they're like, oh, go find a safe place. When Darth Maul finally shows up, he goes and sits in a spacecraft, and then he wants to blow up some droidekas. So he's like, huh, the, the great pilot! Huh, what button do I push to shoot this thing? And, of course, the clever, quote-unquote, writing of Qui-Gon ordering him to stay in that cockpit. He never says the cockpit has to stay in the same place, just that Anakin has to stay in it. And I love that, like, the real Naboo pilots, the trained ones, are going to combat. And one of them gets shot down by this single tank outside. Anakin accidentally pushes the autopilot button, which starts a launch routine and evasively dodges three blasts. How bad was that pilot who got hit? Yeah, I, I agree. At no point, other than the pod race, which, you know, was just to, so they could get a part to get to where the story was trying to tell them they needed to go, which is now told them... So they could go back to the beginning of the story. Yes, <laughs> they didn't need to go there in the first place. But whatever. My point is that Jake Lloyd had his moment, and it's not here at the end. And actually, nothing... Like Jar Jar, he's just been kind of hanging out without getting any better or worse. Now, I got to ask, before this whole battle kicks off, this small band, they'll go and they'll find the rest of the Gungans. They've abandoned their underwater city because the droids, I guess, have taken it over. And this is where you get the big twist in the film, that Padme is actually Queen Amidala. I... It's so weird that they're trying to keep this a secret when we've seen her running around as Padme. Like, was anyone fooled by this? Obi-Wan was fooled. He looks surprised. Qui-Gon yeah. kind of has a smug smile, but Obi-Wan's like, what? Yippee! No, I don't care. <laughs> but, yeah, I think it was too obvious because I knew Natalie Portman's face. You know, it's 
she's obviously the handmaiden. She's obviously the queen. Yeah, she's running around her palace, right, with a pistol. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I was wondering what was supposed to be transpiring here. She's just trying to get to the viceroys. Yes, they're trying to get the viceroy. Maul cuts off their path, so they have to go the long route. And man, do I love that entrance. First of all, I love that Queen Amidala says, we'll take the long way. She's like, yeah, we are not messing with that. And then Duel of the Fates music comes up, the double-bladed lightsaber comes out, and the best lightsaber fight in the entire Star Wars saga begins now. <laughs> yeah, I think, I don't remember the one from Revenge of the Sith as well. Second best. Okay, maybe. And the best with emotion. There's no emotion here. No, the best technical fight, I remember this being my favorite, technically. Oh, yeah. I mean, Ray Park should just play every lightsaber dude ever. I mean, his flips, his ninja moves, his casual use of the force, just like pointing at a box and throwing it to open a door. He is a badass. And this fight, to this day, I can't get enough of watching it. When it came out on VHS, I watched this fight, rewound, watched this fight again, rewound, watched this fight again. Love this. I hate to rain on your parade here, but I don't think Neeson's very good in this fight. I see Ray Park flipping around. It's kind of like, have you ever watched Dancing with the Stars? And you know, you got the really <laughs> good dancer. I actually have, yeah, with Leah Thompson as the guest. <laughs> yeah. And then you got, like, Jack A as the one they're trying to trot around to pretend they're as good as they are. And that's what I'm feeling like here is I'm like, yeah, Ray Park can move, but I don't feel like the fight feels very fair. Like, it's not very exciting. And I feel like it it's over really quick. It is over in about 20 minutes with all the intercuts. I mean, you're cutting to the Gungans and you're cutting to the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the actual fighting, I'm surprised that Liam goes down. I'm very surprised that Darth Maul gets cut in half and will never come back. Stuart, I, I always like the good guys to be an underdog. I like that Darth Maul has better moves than them. It takes two Jedi to finally defeat him. I, you know, when I played with my toys, I always wanted like 700 stormtroopers and three good guys to fight them all. That's just more interesting to me. So I don't have a problem with Darth Maul being a ninja and these Jedi, well, they're only supposed to use their powers for defense. So maybe that's why they're a little bit awkward when it comes to a full-on lightsaber battle. And I actually like the matchup of the different styles. Yeah, Liam Neeson is not going to do a backflip, but when they are trapped in between those power grids, Liam Neeson is going to sit and meditate and call on the Force, while Darth Maul is going to go back and forth like a caged beast. I like that. I did like that moment. That was a nice buildup of anticipation. I like that, but are those power grids, is that from Galaxy Quest? Like, why are those there? I don't understand the purpose of that except to affect the plot. And I don't know why Obi-Wan can't catch up to them since we saw they have the speedy Gonzalez run earlier. He tries to catch up and he can't make it to the power grids in time. Well, maybe he's afraid they'll turn on and he'll get cut in half because he can't stop in time. What about when they turn off and he try just needs to get through eight of them and can only get through five? And Obi-Wan... I have always had this feeling that Obi-Wan calls upon the dark side to kill Darth Maul because he gives into anger. Qui-Gon dies. He screams no. And when he comes out of the gate, my favorite single moment. I love that. Yes. Yeah. Is when he comes out of that gate and they're swinging and give McGregor props because he's keeping up with Park. He's going behind the head. They're doing and dance of lightsaber battle it gives me chills it's so freaking awesome i can't exp- 
express my love for this moment enough. <laughs> I feel it, Arnie. I feel it. I enjoy it, too. The biggest surprise to me with this fight, and I don't think we'll ever get an answer, maybe in the books. I'm sure there's a book about it. But the biggest shock to me, when Qui-Gon dies, when he gets stabbed by a lightsaber, he doesn't disappear. Like, I just had assumed that that's what Jedi do when they die, is that they disappear and become one with the Force. We don't get that here, and I know that gave a lot of theories to maybe Qui-Gon was secretly bad because Anakin didn't disappear when he died in Return of the oh, Jedi. Wow. And All right, here's the deal. At this point, no Jedi disappeared at death. There were no Force ghosts. You notice none of the Council is blue ghost. Okay. We will find out throughout the movies, or it comes back up in Episode 3, Qui-Gon here keeps talking about the living force. Well, Qui-Gon is the first to realize the trick of the force ghost and ends up teaching that to Yoda, who teaches it to Obi-Wan. So after this, that knowledge was passed on, but it was old knowledge that was lost. I am getting some of this from the books, but it's all coming from Lucas's own notes. Hence, it was intentional and it was supposed to be a mystery why Qui-Gon didn't disappear so that it could explain the origin of force ghosting. Wow. Okay. A, I didn't really notice it, but I do think it's interesting that people are getting more connections out of the discrepancies between the old <laughs> trilogy and this one than the explanations being given. Okay, maybe. All right. Am I wrong that I want to see Darth Vader get turned? No, you're not. I want to see that arc, but hey, I love this fight. The one... Uh, can we talk about the Gungans and their... uh Boomer balls? What? Yeah. I'm assuming you're not as passionate about Jar Jar in this moment. I'm not as passionate, but I actually really like the Gungan droid fight in the beginning. Yeah. When the Gungans come out with their war beasts and they put down the shields and that anthem march is playing and the tanks roll out and the awesome mechanics of how many battle droids are in each one. No, I like this intro. I agree with you. Yeah, those, I don't understand why they have force field. Oh, I guess they had those to make their homes underwater. Okay, there you go. But yeah, I like the big beast. I love the tanks coming in. I love when those battle droids, like, just walk through the shield. That's the only way they can attack. And I love the big catapults that send the big boomers that take the droid down. I hate the boomers, though. What are those? Why do they just have balls with energy? I mean, I take them as electromagnetic pulses, basically. They look so cartoonish to me. It's just laziness for me that, oh, we have magic balls with electricity that will defeat the bad guys. It's a weapon. I mean, would it have been better if they had laser grenades? I mean, it's something different than a gun. It's something we haven't seen before. The CGI animation may not be all I'd like it to be for that. Th that could be said about this entire end battle. But at the beginning of this battle, I think it's going great. Then Jar Jar gets a battle droid wrapped around his foot and jumps on a tank, and I'm like, all right, it's getting a little too silly. Juggles a little boomer ball into, yeah, pilot and crashes a tank, yeah. Yeah, he inadvertently three stooges his way through victory. Yeah, he, he's quick to raise the white flag. Like, as soon as those shields are down and they're surrounded, he's giving up. I wish there'd been an arc for him. <laughs> I wish there was an arc for anyone in this film. Right, but Captain Tarples is there like, don't give up, Jar Jar! We will fight! And Jar Jar's just like, I give up. I would have liked to have seen Jar Jar exhibit actual bravery. That would have, I think, redeemed the character so much if he did one thing right. <laughs> but that he ends as stupid as he begins, it is problematic. Okay, thank you. I feel like this whole podcast, you've been like, no, 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 Jar Jar's okay. He's not okay. 
He's terrible. I don't say he's terrible. He's just problematic. Okay. And flat. And like Jacob said, so is every other character in this movie. No character in this movie gives me an arc. No character in this movie has the kind of evolution and resolution I would like. I gave one example for Jar Jar. Pick a character and I'll tell you the ways their character not arc disappoints me. I mean, speaking of characters that accidentally bumble their way to save the day, I mean, Anakin, the great pilot that would become Darth Vader, yeah, he flies the ship and he gets Archie to take it off autopilot only so he could crash it into the droid control ship. And I'd like to call out what you just said, the droid control ship. At the beginning of this movie, when the ambassadors arrive, there's like 50 droid control ships. Where did they go? Why is there one droid control ship now? They've all left. I Yeah, th- there's only one. I don't know. Maybe Sidious has told him to leave because now he's going to have to do some kind of investigation as chancellor. Yeah, I'm stretching here. I don't know. I just have a problem with Lucas going back to his trope of, hey, there's a big ship that if you get inside and shoot this one spot, it's going to blow up immediately. Well, come on. He, these are prototypes of the Death Star, aren't they? They're, they're round. Sure, they have a ring that goes around them, but they're meant to look like the Death Star. So that doesn't surprise me. This is the technology, I believe, that's going to give rise to the larger Death Star that we'll see in the original trilogy. Yeah, it's silly, but it's over. And now we're going to get a party just like at the end of Return of the Jedi with the Ewoks. Only now Palpatine shows up in a spaceship that looks like a lipstick tube. And for the party, we do get Qui-Gon's funeral. It's (laughs) weird. You know, I think of Viking funerals where you put him in a ship and set it off to sea and then start it on fire. That they're all just standing around watching this human body like, you know, if you can you go to cremation and watch the body burn? I thought they stick it like in an oven. You know, you, they just bring you out the ashes afterwards. You don't usually want to watch the flesh burn off of the face. No, but, uh, exactly. It's got to stink. and Yeah. A lot of whimpering and beeping at this one. I don't know what it should look like, but I know that I'm having no more fun at the Gungan party than I am at the Jedi funeral. Well, they have Yoda and Mace talking at the funeral, and Yoda goes, but which one died? The master or the apprentice. And then it pans over and you see Obi-Wan with his hood up and you can't see his face. And then it shifts focus to Palpatine with that hood in the background. You just said, who's the master? Who's the apprentice? We know it was the apprentice. We go to Palpatine. We see the hood. It is right there. It is told to us visually, if not verbally, Palpatine is Sidious. In lots of ways, this movie tells you. And I, I think that if it's supposed to be a surprise by the time we get to episode three, um, Lucas is fooling himself. But this is where Obi-Wan finds his spine. Qui-Gon's dying wish, train the boy. So he stands up against Yoda and Yoda finally goes, agree with you, the council does, which makes me think the council is just a figurehead and Yoda <laughs> makes all the choices. It gets resolved so quickly. It's like, OK, because Obi-Wan's like, I'm going to teach him no matter what. All right. I I guess this is supposed to justify the reference when Obi-Wan, as a ghost, tells Yoda, hey, I was rebellious when I was under you. Kinda, I guess. Maybe. I think that's how Lucas ties in the two trilogies, is kinda, I guess, maybe. But we end with Boss Nass screaming peace and a whole bunch of CGI as credits roll. So, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Star Wars Episode One? The Phantom Menace. Jacob. 
do I recommend this film? I we, We've had this big, long conversation. We've talked about negatives. There's been some positives. And so, as like a, we, we talked about those Ewok adventure films. Well, here's a version of that that actually works. And I, I kind of enjoy this one. I, I think it's unduly criticized so harshly. I, I, yes, Jar Jar is annoying. I am Team Stewart on that all the way. But I enjoy a lot of this film. There are boring things. Yeah, this is a big step down. It's even a step down from Jedi, which was a jumble of a film. But it's still recommendable. I, I, I think of this as a one-off Star Wars film. It doesn't really matter, but if you're going to set something like those Ewok films in the Star Wars universe, this is what I would want. It's got the space battles, it's got the lightsabers, it's got Jedi, it's got Sith, it's got all those elements. Yeah, it's it's a weak recommend, but it's still a recommend. But I'll give you this much. I've seen enough bad movies thanks to now playing to know that this is not a nadir like some series fall into. It's better than the Ewok movies, but there's almost nothing good about it. There's some stuff that might be not bad, but truly, there is very little here to enjoy and savor as presented by George Lucas. This is a movie about minutia that is poorly acted. Technically, some of the effects are good. Some of it are not. It does not tell us what the rest of the movie is going to do. And it panders to children. I can't believe you gave it a pass. I mean, this is an easy not recommend. I just won't say it's a strong not recommend. I mean, what I really wonder here is if I could fix one thing, what would it be? Would I, would I remove Jar Jar or would I remove Jake Lloyd? And I had to think <laughs> about that. Jake Lloyd. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I had to think about it because Jar Jar is more annoying, but Jake Lloyd is more important. That needed to be a really good performance. And it is both terrible as a omen of something awful, nor does he seem beautific in the way that, like, a magical child would be. I mean, he is a ruinous vision of a beloved character at an important juncture where we're trying to understand how he became evil. And we'll get none of that in this movie. I'm hoping that Christensen in episodes two and three will be able to do something more than what's done with this Darth Vader character. But it's it's a horrible introduction for Anakin. And across the board, this movie is just not good. There's nothing good in it. So it's an easy not recommend. I have a complicated history with this film. As I mentioned, I saw it a lot in a short period of time. And my equation with that, it's like the kid who likes smoking and then he gets caught by his dad and is locked in the closet with the cigarettes. When I saw this- <laughs> This is going to be interesting. All right. <laughs> when I saw this at midnight, I was so ecstatic. Fast forward to time eight that weekend. <laughs> and <laughs> This is like Chinese water torture. I'm surprised you even knew your name by that point. <laughs> I was dreading going in, and I'm like, all right, here's what I'm in for. Lightsaber fight. Boring, 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 boring. Padres! Boring, 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 boring. Darth Maul! Credits. But that was 17 years ago, almost. And in that time, I took a break from Phantom Menace, and I have once again come to appreciate what is good. It is the worst of the Star Wars live-action films. But... There's enough good in here with the Padres, with the creations in the universe, the creature designs, the Senate, the Council, and of course, my number one fave, Darth Maul. It's getting the weakest of recommends. It's sliding into the grave. 
It's weaker than Jacob's recommend by far, but it is still a recommendable film. I like what it does for Star Wars. If you're not a Star Wars fan, yeah, I could see hating this, but I am a Star Wars fan and I enjoy watching Phantom Menace. So yeah, recommend. I get it to the degree, but I'm waiting to get the movie and I think we're going to. I think we're gonna get a lot less Jar Jar if memory serves and a lot more plot next week. Indeed, with Star Wars Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. But in the meantime, we're going to conclude another cinematic saga. This Friday, we're reviewing Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1. Yeah, I'm excited. We'll see if it can live up to the book and to the last couple films, but I'm wishing everyone the best, and love it or hate it, you're going to hear our thoughts this Friday. Hopefully you'll hear our thoughts. You can get that entire series with a donation of $10 or more. You can catch up. Donate today. You'll get Hunger Games, Hunger Games, Catching Fire, plus our two reviews of Battle Royale and Battle Royale 2. And then this Friday, Hunger Games, Mockingjay Part 1. And then next week, Hunger Games, Mockingjay Part 2. If you donate gold right now, you not only get all those podcasts, you'll also get reviews of Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, If you go platinum, $35 or more, and remember, I know it's a lot of money, I know not everyone can do it, but it really helps our show if you can, you will get, as of Friday, Battle Royales, The Hunger Games, Reservoir Dogs Pulp Fiction, plus True Romance, Natural Born Killers, Four Rooms, and From Dusk Till Dawn, Tarantino-involved films that he didn't solely direct, and then you'll still be with us the rest of the year and into early January as we finish off Quentin Tarantino's oeuvre. So I really do hope you can join us then, and thank you in advance from all of us from our heart for any support you can do. If you can't do $10, we know the holidays get hard. If you can donate $5, it still helps us do the show that we put out each and every week. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. Until next week, the podcast will be with you always. There's no doubt the mysterious warrior was a Sith. Hmm. Always two there are. No more, no less. A master and an apprentice. But which was destroyed? The master or the apprentice? Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing Star Wars Retrospective Series. Now this is Podracer. We hope you've enjoyed the show. This is so wizarding. If you like Star Wars, join Arnie and Marjorie at SWActionNews.com for Star Wars Action News, a podcast dedicated to Star Wars toys, books, games, and more. I heard the deep space pilots talk about them. I listened to all the traders and the star pilots who come through here. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review. The Force will guide us. Oh, Maxi big The Force. In the archives at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find hundreds of in-depth movie reviews, including every film in the Star Trek, Terminator, 2001, Back to the Future, Batman, and James Bond film series. Has anyone been to them all? Hmm, not likely. I want to be the first one to see them all. 
and while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can share your opinions of these films with the hosts and other listeners. So good being home. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Maybe we saw being friends. How isn't he gonna pay for all of this? I have 20,000 Republic Dactaris. Republic credits? Republic credits are no good out here. I need something more real. Now Playing is an independent podcast with no sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to help keep the show going. No money, no parts, no deal. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Mom, you say the biggest problem in this universe is nobody helps each other. Any help here would be hot. (laughs) You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. He can help you. He was meant to help you. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. You have brought hope to those who have none. I'm so very proud of you. You can show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. A few containers of supplies. The Queen's wardrobe, maybe. A link to our Cafe Press store is available on our homepage. Your trade boycott of our planet has ended. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. I can't believe there's still slavery in the galaxy. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Recently elected ruler of the Naboo, who speaks on our behalf. Now Playing is not affiliated with Lucasfilm, 20th Century Fox, or Disney. Star Wars and all of the Star Wars universe contains is the intellectual property and trademark of Lucasfilm Limited, and no infringement is intended. My lord, is that legal? I will make it legal. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. We recommend a commission be sent to Naboo to ascertain the truth. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Don't center on your anxieties, Obi-Wan. Keep your concentration here and now where it belongs. Obi-Wan. Promise. Promise me you will train the boy. Yes, Master. He is the chosen one. He will bring balance. Train him. But I know there's other stories that are better, but right said Fred, the little girl and her imaginary Jeez. atrocious friend. Yes, you picked a bad one. <laughs> but it has a Star Wars connection with Carrie Fisher. But I don't know why they take him. Maybe he'd do more damage on the ship. Wait a minute. 
Drop Dead Fred? What did I say? Right Dead Fred? Yeah, I'm like, what is that? I'm too sexy after anything. I mean, my mind went to places I can't even begin to understand. Okay, Drop Dead Fred. All right. Why don't you say that? <laughs> right, said Fred. The These are too sexy act. for this planet. Too sexy for this planet. Yeah. Not too sexy to step in shit, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll re-say just that and we'll insert it. <laughs> right, said Fred. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I, I literally the whole time I was just like, right, said Fred. Like, I, I remember the video. They're just walking on a catwalk. Like, I could not put this together. <laughs> now I want to do like a song. He's a Duncan. You know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why not have him do all the obnoxious 90s hits? We should record an album. Why Jar Jar do that? sings. It's like yeah. Buckwheat sings from the old SNL skit. I was thinking, uh, what was what was that guy's name from American Idol? Hung? William Hung? Yeah. yeah. William Hung. Yeah. yeah. Do a whole thing. She's a bang. She's a bang. Mambo number five, Macarena, every annoying novelty song. <laughs> I was thinking Drop Dead Fred, the little girl with her obnoxious imaginary friend. All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs>